Hello, and uh, welcome to the latest episode of the Smithflix Experience. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Eric Smith. Thank you for joining us on this podcast as we continue down the path of looking at the world of James Bond through the movies. So we've reached uh, the 16th film in the franchise. So guessed it. Next up is License to Kill. stuff there uh so yes we've approached the end of the 80s it's 1989 we saw a slew of sequels including lethal weapon 2 back to the future part 2 indiana jones and the last crusade and ghostbusters 2 batman made his big screen debut rick moranis accidentally shrunk his kids madonna strikes controversy with her hit song like a prayer the html is born the nintendo game boy makes its successful debut and Bond is taking a slightly darker turn. Now, it should be noted that not very many people know this, but that this Bond film, License to Kill, was almost rated R. That's right, the MPAA originally gave it an R rating due to the graphic violence depicted in the film. However, filmmakers made some edits to cut down on the violence, which caused uh, the MPAA to lower it to PG-13 therefore making this the first Bond film to receive a PG-13 rating since the induction of the, uh, the rating system. Another thing that not uh, many know about is that the movie was also originally called License Revoked, which was the title of a John Gardner Bond novel. And there, are, there were early teaser posters released that reflected the title. Uh, the name was changed during post-production, due to American test audiences associating the term with driver's license, as in your driver's license has been revoked. So they changed it to license to kill, which is, of course, title of Bond's double O status, or whatever his, whatever you call it. Uh, so finding these, finding those posters actually would be very rare and would be considered a collector's item. So it's pretty cool. And the same thing happened with Return of the Jedi in 1983, uh, as the early teaser posters originally had it titled Revenge of the Jedi. But uh, we'll discuss that. We'll cover those at another season. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Now, Timothy Dalton returned for the second and final time as James Bond. Dalton had originally signed a three-picture deal with MGM, but due to an ongoing legal dispute between Eon Productions and MGM, a third film, which was slated for a 1991 release and was reportedly going to be called Property of a Lady, was put on hold. 
When talks resumed to get the film going again, it was 1994, and the producers wanted him to do at least four or five more Bond films. They wanted to extend that contract. At that point, Dalton only felt he was that it was too much, too long. He was getting too old to play the role. He was 43 in 1989 when they made License to Kill, uh, which would have made him 48 in 1994. So now had he agreed to the five-film deal and figuring that the Bond's films continue to be traditionally released every two years, not only would we not have seen Pierce Brosnan as 007, but Dalton would have been 58 in 2004 by the time he finished his fifth, uh, well, seventh total Bond film, which would be the same age Moore was in A View to a Kill. So, wise choice, Mr. Dalton. Although that would be a pretty freaky alternate universe. You know, can you imagine not having Pierce Brosnan as 007? I, uh, I perish the thought, honestly. Now, for the role of Bond woman and CIA agent Pam Bouvier, the producers cast American actress Carrie Lowell after a successful audition. Lowell said that playing a bongo was huge shoes to fill as she never saw herself as a glamour girl. She even auditioned in jeans and a leather jacket. And she actually read lines from a, the a View to a Kill script as the screenplay for License Kill wasn't completed by the time casting had begun. Uh, so now the producers originally had planned for Agent Bouvier to have longer hair, but when Lowell was cast, they incorporated, incorporated her shorter cut into the film with Lowell wearing a wig in the beginning and getting it cut after Bond tells her to go buy some new clothes. Now, Lowell was born in Huntington, in New York in 1961. Her father was a geologist, and she spent much of her childhood traveling abroad, living in places like Libya, the Netherlands, and France. Her family eventually settled in Denver, Colorado, when she was 12. Lowell attended college at the University of Colorado Boulder, and was considered majoring in literature, but then moved to New York City to pursue modeling, where she worked for such renowned labels like Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren. She even attended New York University in between modeling gigs. She then turned her sights to acting when she studied at Manhattan's Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. She made her film debut in the 1986 action thriller Dangerously Close opposite John Stockwell, and the 1986 Harold Ramis-directed comedy Club Paradise opposite Robin Williams, Twiggy, and Peter O'Toole. Aside from her memorable performance in License to Kill, she also appeared in the 1993 romantic comedy drama Sleepless in Seattle, opposite Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, the 1994 romantic drama Love Affair, opposite Warren Beatty and Annette Bening, the 1995 drama Leaving Las Vegas, opposite Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue, and the 1997 comedy Fierce Creatures, opposite future Bond alum John Cleese, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Kline, and Michael Palin. Now for the role of the devious drug lord Franz Sanchez, the producers cast Italian-American actor Robert Davi, following a suggestion by Cubby Broccoli's daughter Tina and writer Richard Maybaugh. They both were impressed by his performance in the 1988 TV movie Terrorist on Trial, the United States versus Salim Ajami. Now, Davi was born in New York City in 1956 to Italian immigrants. He always wanted to become an actor and attended Hofstra University because of their strong drama department. He further studied acting with coach Stella Adler when he moved to Manhattan. He made his film debut in the 1984 Richard Benjamin-directed crime comedy City Heat, opposite Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds. Uh, and his other notable performances were in the 1985 Richard Donner adventure film The Goonies, opposite Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, Jeff Cohen, Corey Feldman, Carrie Green, Martha Plimpton, Kay Hui Kwan, Anne Ramsey, and Joe Pantoliano. Uh, the 1986 action or raw deal opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger, the 1988 action flick Action Jackson opposite Carl Weathers, 
Sharon Stone and Craig T. Nelson. The 1988 actioner Die Hard opposite Bruce Willis. The 1990 action horror sequel Maniac Cop 2. The 1990 sci-fi action sequel Predator 2 opposite Danny Glover, Gary Busey, and Bill Paxton. The 1991 erotic thriller Legal Tender opposite Bond alum Tanya Roberts. The 1992 historical bomb Christopher Columbus The Discovery, which again was directed by Bond alum John Glenn. I know we've mentioned that film lots of times. He did bring over a lot of the um, people he worked with in Bond films to that uh that uh, stinker of a film. Uh, he was also in the 1993 action horror sequel, Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence. The 1993 comedy stinker sequel, Son of the Pink Panther, opposite Rob- Roberto Benigni. It was Benigni's attempt to resurrect the Pink Panther franchise. Um, the 1984 comedy, Cops and Robertsons, opposite Chevy Chase and Jack Palance. The 1995 drama, Showgirls, opposite Elizabeth Berthkeley and Kyle MacLachlan, which actually earned him a Razzie for Worst Supporting Actor. He was also in the 2002 comedy The Fourth Tenor, opposite Rodney Dangerfield. The 2002 comedy The Hot Chick, opposite Rachel McAdams and Rob Schneider. 2011 biographical crime film Kill the Irishman, opposite Ray Stevenson, Bond alum Christopher Walken. Uh, there's also Vincent D'Onofrio and Val Kilmer. And the 2014 action sequel The Expendables 3, opposite Sylvester Stallone, Jason Statham, Wesley Snipes, and Mel Gibson. Uh, there's also a unreleased 2023 biopic Reagan where uh, opposite Den- Dennis Quaid where Dennis Quaid plays uh, President Ronald Reagan that has not been released yet it's just kind of it's been completed but apparently it's just sitting on a shelf somewhere so maybe it's not that good Who knows? now for the role of Sanchez Davi researched Colombian drug cartels and how to properly do a Colombian accent as he was a method actor he would always stay in character while on set and to prepare for the role, he read Fleming's first novel, Casino Royale, deciding to turn Sanchez into a mirror image of Bond. For the role of Sanchez's troubled mistress, Lupe Lamora, the producers cast Puerto Rican-American actress Talisa Soto at the suggestion of Robert Davi. They auditioned 12 actresses for the role, and Davi liked her the best, stating he would kill for her. Soto was born in 1967, also in New York City, and also got her start as a model, appearing in such famed magazines like Vogue, Mademoiselle, Glamour, and Elle. She's also featured in advertising campaigns for Calvin Klein, Cartier, Clarins, Revlon, uh, Salvatore Ferragamo, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Versace. She made her acting debut in a music video for Madonna's Each Time You Break My Heart, opposite then-boyfriend singer Nick Kamen. Uh, she made her feature film debut in the 1988 comedy drama Spike of Bensonhurst, opposite Sasha Mitchell. She's also known for her performances in the 1992 musical drama The Mambo Kings, opposite Armando Santi and Antonio Banderas. Uh, the 1994 romantic comedy Don Juan DeMarco, opposite Johnny Depp, Marlon Brando, and Faye Dunaway. The 1995 action stinker Mortal Kombat, and its even stinkier 1997 sequel Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Uh, she's also in the 1996 spy spoof Spy Hard, opposite Leslie Nielsen, would kind of spoof the Bond films. Uh, the 2000 horror film Island of the Dead, opposite Malcolm McDowell. The 2002 action thriller Ballistic X vs. Sever, opposite Antonio Banderas and Lucy Liu. And the 2013 sci-fi actioner Elysium, opposite Matt Damon and Jodie Foster. In 1990, Soto was chosen by People Magazine as one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world. And in 1995, she was featured in Sports Illustrated's annual swimsuit issue. She's also known for her marriages to actor Costas Mandalore and current husband of over 20 years, actor Benjamin Bratt. 
Now, for the return of Felix Leiter, the producers did it first. They recast actor David Hedison, who previously played Felix in 1973's Live and Let Die. I would say this is a scene double moment, but scene double moments only occur when it's, a, it's uh, the same actor playing different roles. So this is, but this is the first. Yeah. Hedison was actually surprised when the producers asked him to play Bond's CIA buddy again, figuring his role in Live and Let Die would be the first and only time he would play the character. Uh, well, there's no definitive reason is given as to why they chose to bring back Hedison. He feels that it was because there was much more to do in the film than in the past, and that he felt the producers were afraid of using an unknown or someone they were not quite sure of. Director John Glenn was wary of casting Hedison as he was 61 at the time, and the role involved skydiving, but Hedison proved him wrong. He would later go on to criticize the Felix Leiter role, which he considered fun, but not serious acting and that the Felix Leiter character is fairly one-dimensional. Hedison would be, the, again, as I mentioned, he's the first actor to play Felix Leiter twice. Now, when I discussed uh, my, in my Live and Let Die episodes, um, I really never didn't speak about Hedison very much, other than his starring role in The Fly. Now, Hedison was actually born Albert David Hedison in Providence, Rhode Island in 1927, and is of Armenian descent. He decided he wanted to be an actor after seeing Tyrone Power in the 1941 drama Blood and Sand. Hedison enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 1945 during World War II, but the war ended before he completed basic training. He served 18 months and then mustered out. He resumed his acting career with the Sock and Buskin Players at Brown University before moving to New York where he studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater and with Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio. His early film roles had him billed as Al Hedison. It was then he was cast as Victor Sebastian in the short-lived espionage TV series Five Fingers that he changed his name at the insistence of NBC. He proposed his middle name, and they accepted. He made his film debut in the 1957 war film The Enemy Below, opposite Robert Mitchum and Bond alum Kurt Jurgens, before landing the lead in the 1958 horror classic The Fly. His other notable performances include the 1958 adventure film The Son of Robin Hood, the 1960 fantasy adventure The Lost World opposite Bondalum, Jill St. John, and Claude Rains, an appearance in the 1965 religious epic The Greatest Story Ever Told, uh, the 1980 adventure film North Seat Hijack opposite Bondalum and Live and Let Die co-star Roger Moore, uh, also has James Mason and Anthony Perkins, and he was also in the 1984 thriller The Naked Face, also opposite Moore. Now, for the role of Sanchez's lead henchman, Dario, the producers cast up-and-coming Puerto Rican actor Benicio Del Toro. Uh, director John Glenn stated he was cast because he played the character laid back while menacing in a quirky sort of way. Del Toro was born in San German, Puerto Rico in 1967. He lived there until he was 15 when his father moved the family to Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. Del Toro originally pursued a business degree by attending uh, the University of California, San Diego. He took drama as an elective and discovered to enjoy that more. He ended up dropping out of college and moved to Los Angeles, where he studied under the tutelage of noted acting teachers Stella Adler and Arthur Mendoza, as well as the Circle and the Square Theater School in New York City. Del Toro first landed roles on TV shows in the late 80s, usually playing thugs and drug dealers. He also appeared in the 1987 music video to Madonna's La Isla Bonita as a background character. Not many people know this, but he made his film debut in the 1988 comedy Big Top Pee-wee opposite Paul Rubens, or Pee-wee Herman, as he's built. Uh, he actually plays uh, 
the dog boy in that movie. So you can't even tell it's him. His other notable performances include the 1992 epic bomb, Christopher Columbus, the discovery again, another bond alum. There's so many bond alums in that, uh, in that epic bomb there. The 1993 biographical crime comedy, money for nothing opposite John Cusack, the 1994 comedy swimming with sharks opposite Kevin Spacey and Frank Whaley. Uh, the 1994 thriller China Moon opposite Ed Harris and Madeline Stowe. The 1995 crime thriller The Usual Suspects opposite Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne, Kevin Spacey, and Kevin Pollack. The, the 1996 thriller The Fan opposite Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes. The 1996 biographical drama Basquiat opposite future Bond alum Jeffrey Wright, David Bowie, and Gary Oldman. Uh, the 1997 comedy Excess Baggage opposite Alicia Silverstone. Uh, the 1998 black comedy Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas opposite Johnny Depp. The 2000 Steven Soderbergh-directed crime drama Traffic opposite Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Don Cheadle, and Dennis Quaid, upon which Del Toro did win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor and a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture. Enough for that role. He's also in the 2000 Guy Ritchie crime comedy Snatch opposite Jason Statham, Vinnie Jones, and Dennis Farina. The 2001 Sean Penn-directed mystery The Pledge opposite Jack Nicholson, 2003 drama 21 Grams opposite Sean Penn, Naomi Watts, and Danny Houston, upon which he was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for that one. Uh, the 2003 action thriller The Hunted opposite Tommy Lee Jones, the 2005 Robert Rodriguez crime anthology Sin City opposite Bruce Willis, the 2010 horror remake The Wolfman opposite Anthony Hopkins, Emily Blunt, and Hugo Weaving, 2014 comedy Inherent Vice opposite Joaquin Phoenix, Josh Brolin, and Owen Wilson. Uh, the 2015 action thriller Sicario opposite Josh Brolin and Emily Blunt. And its 2018 sequel Sicario Day of the Soldado. He's also in the 2014 sci-fi actioner Guardians of the Galaxy opposite Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana. Uh, made an appearance in the 2017 sci-fi action sequel Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, in the 2018 sci-fi action sequel Avengers Infinity War and the 2021 Wes Anderson comedy drama, The French Dispatch. Uh, he also provided the voice of Swiper, the Fox, in the 2019 live-action adaptation of Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Now, you may also recognize famed Las Vegas singer Wayne Newton in the role of televangelist-slash-cult leader, Professor Joe Butcher. Uh, Newton landed the role after sending the producers a letter expressing interest in a cameo as he always wanted to be in a Bond film. Now, Newton is a world-renowned singer who was born in Norfolk, Virginia in 1942. Newton started performing as a teenager in Las Vegas in the late 50s and was mentored by some of the nation's biggest artists, including Frank Sinatra, Bobby Darin, and Elvis Presley. In 1963, he became the headliner at the Flamingo and would go on to become a staple of Las Vegas. His best-known songs include 1963's Donka Shane, which is his signature song, and was most notably used in the 1986 comedy Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and 1965's Summer Wind, which was a cover of the popular Frank Sinatra song. Newton's other notable acting roles, where he usually played himself, uh, include the 1982 sports drama Rocky III, opposite Sylvester Stallone and Mr. T, the 1986 war miniseries North and South, opposite Patrick Swayze, uh, the 1990 action comedy bomb The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, opposite Andrew Dice Clay, the 1997 comedy sequel Vegas Vacation opposite Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo, a cameo in the 2001 heist film Ocean's Eleven, a cameo in the 2009 comedy The Hangover, 
and a cameo in the 2016 TV movie sequel, Sharknado, The Fourth Awakens. I can't believe I'm talking about mentioning, even mentioning Sharknado in my podcast. Uh, he also voiced the role of Jimmy Tenstrings in the 2011 animated sequel, Hoodwinked 2, Hood vs. Evil. Now Robert Brown returned as M for the fourth and final time. He was set to return as M for 1991's Property of a Lady again. But the delayed development of that movie, uh, brought on, again, brought on by legal issues between MGMUA and Eon, led the producers to sign to rework everything, and Dalton bowed out his bond, and they decided to recast the characters of the Dalton era. Uh, likewise, Carolyn Bliss reprised her role as Moneypenny for the second and uh, final time. Bliss, again, was also going to appear in 1991's Property of a Lady, but due to the situation just mentioned, uh, they decided to cast a new Money Penny by the time uh, the new Bond film rolled around in 1995. Uh, and, of course, Desmond Llewellyn returned as Q for the 14th time. Now, John Glenn returned to direct for the fifth and final time. Glenn was planning on returning for Dalton's third film as 007, but when those plans fell through again, chaos from with the, the whole legal thing between MGM, uh, UA, and Eon, uh, it, everything just kind of fell apart. So by the time the legal issues were resolved, Glenn had decided to bow out of the franchise. Uh, the film was once again co-written by Richard Maybaum and producer Michael G. Wilson. Now, Wor Wilson worked on much of the script himself, as in 1988, the Writers Guild of America went on strike, leaving Maybaum unable to work. While the script is largely original, there were several elements lifted from other Ian Fleming Bond novels, uh, including the Milton Crest character, who is featured in the short The Hildebrand Rarity, and Felix Slater being mauled by a shark, which was in the Live and Let Die novel. We'll discuss that more when we talk about the books comparisons. Now, for this film, the producers wanted to shoot in a location that Bond hasn't been to before. They originally thought of China and were set to shoot there, with the script including a chase sequence along the Great Wall, as well as a fight scene alongside the Terracotta Army. But those plans fell through, partly due to the 1986 biographical drama The Last Emperor. Uh, Cubby Broccoli felt that film removed some of the novelty of shooting in China. Uh, they then returned their sights to Mexico and received approval to shoot in Mexico City and its surroundings, although the name was changed to a fictional city near Panama to avoid tying Mexico with the drug trafficking-centered plot, thus hurting Mexico's tourism trade. Now, John Barry was originally going to return to score, but due to recovering from surgery due to a rupture of his esophagus in 1988, he was unable to work. The producers brought on famed composer Michael Kamen to compose the soundtrack. His film score contributions include the 1982 musical drama Pink Floyd, The Wall, the 1983 thriller The Dead Zone, the 1985 dystopian comedy Brazil, the 1986 fantasy action-adventure Highlander, the 1987 action-comedy film Lethal Weapon, the 1987 comedy Adventures in Babysitting, the 1988 actioner Die Hard, the 1989 actioner Roadhouse, the 1989 action-comedy sequel Lethal Weapon 2, the 1990 action sequel, Die Hard 2. The 1990 comedy, Nothing But Trouble. The 1990 action comedy, Hudson Hawk. The 1991 drama, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, upon which he was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Score. Uh, the 1991 actioner, The Last Boy Scout. The 1992 action sequel, Lethal Weapon 3. The 1993 comedy, Splitting Heirs. The 1993 fantasy action, Last Action Hero. The 1983 action comedy, The Three Musketeers. 
1994 romantic comedy Don Juan DeMarco, upon which he was also nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Score. Uh, the 1995 action comedy sequel Die Hard with a Vengeance. The 1995 drama Mr. Holland's Opus, upon which he won a Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Arrangement in that movie. Uh, the 1996 live-action adaptation of 101 Dalmatians, the 1997 sci-fi horror event Horizon, the 1998 big-screen adaptation of the Ve Avengers from the TV series, the British TV series, of course, the 1998 action-comedy sequel Lethal Weapon 4, the 1998 TV miniseries From the Earth to the Moon, upon which he was nominated for an Emmy, uh, the 1999 animated feature The Iron Giant, the 2000 sci-fi thriller Frequency, the 2000 actioner X-Men, and the 2001 TV miniseries Band of Brothers. For the title song, the producers originally asked Vic Flick, who played lead guitar on Monty Norman's 007 theme, and renowned singing artist Eric Clapton to perform it, but the producers eventually turned down their version. Uh, they felt it wasn't, I don't know, <laughs> wasn't, I don't know, edgy enough wasn't something, that's for sure. Uh, in an interview, uh, Vic Flick says, uh, that's the big James Bond question. You know, what happened to the recording? This, uh, it was never released. The, this Eric Clapton's Bond song was, uh, never released on an album or anything. So, so yeah, Vic Flick was quoted as saying, that's the big James Bond question. What happened to the recording made by Eric Michael Kamen and me? Nobody really knows. The last person I thought to have it was Michael Kamen, but as he has since passed away, the tape has turned into the holy grail of Bond aficionados. So it's it's a mystery. That's honestly it's one of the greatest mysteries of the Bond franchise. I'm very curious to hear how Eric Clapton's version would have sounded. Now, supposedly uh, the um, the track, the Eric Clapton Bond track, uh, has resurfaced recently. Um, it was uploaded to SoundCloud before it was taken down due to copyright issues. Um, but a thoughts authentic three, two, one. Uh, it was taken. Uh, it was uploaded to SoundCloud a year or so ago, um, but was recent uh, was removed due to copyright cons uh, issues. And uh, but its authenticity has been confirmed by. You know, the license to kill producers and stuff like that. So, uh, but it still has not yet been made public. So we're still waiting to hear Eric Clapton's epic Bond song. They, he, it was produced with Michael Kamen. So it, uh, for, from what we're told, it's very Kamen-esque. If you're familiar with Kamen's work, uh, it's pretty good. So instead of Eric Clapton and Vic Flick's version of the license to kill theme, the producers wound up going with renowned American singer Gladys Knight. Now, Knight is known as the Empress of Soul. She got her start and became famous, of course, as the lead singer of the family group Gladys Knight and the Pips. When we're together throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. She has won seven Grammys, four as a solo artist and three with the Pips, and has two number one Billboard Hot 100 singles, Midnight Train to Georgia, and That's What Friends Are For, which she sang with Dionne Warwick, Elton John, and Stevie Wonder. Uh, she is best known for singing such hits like 1967's I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which would later be covered by Marvin Gaye, and Taking In Your Arms and Love Me, the 1972 Grammy winning Neither One of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye, and the 1973 Grammy winning Midnight Train to Georgia, of course. 
She was also nominated for an Academy Award in 2013 for the song You and I Ain't Nothing No More, which was written by Lenny Kravitz uh, from the biographical drama The Butler. Knight also tried her hand in acting, making her film debut in the 1976 romantic drama Pipe Dreams opposite real-life husband Barry Hankerson. She also appeared in such films as the 2003 action comedy Hollywood Homicide opposite Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett, 2009 Tyler Perry musical I Can Do Bad All By Myself, and appeared as herself in the 2021 comedy sequel Coming to America. Uh, she also placed third on the inaugural U.S. season of the U.S. reality competition, The Masked Singer. Now, License to Kill was filmed on location in Mexico City, Mexico, again, which doubled for the fictional Republic of Isthmus. Uh, it was also shot on location in Acapulco, Mexico, uh, Tecate, Mexico, Baja, California, and Key West, Florida. This was the first Bond film not to be filmed at all in the U.K. due to rising costs and taxation from the 1985 passing of the Films Act. Uh, Pinewood Studios in London was only used for post-production and sound re-recording. So let's take a look at the plot. Uh, we open on a Boeing E3 Century AWAC in the sky. They're tracking a private plane. Uh, they report that the plane's taking off from Key West, advising to alert the authorities that it's landing in the Bahamas. We then see Bond riding with Felix Leiter and a friend, dressed to the nines in gray tuxes and top hats, in a 1962 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud II. They see a Coast Guard helicopter approaching, which lands on the road up ahead. Felix says that some of his friends in the DEA. How the heck did they know where he was? I mean, they were driving on the bridge to the Keys. So the car stopped and they get out. Felix wonders what the hell is going on. The DE agent approaches and says that Sanchez was spotted in the Bahamas. Felix asks if they cleared it with NASA and the agent says they have the green light. Felix's friends remind him about the wedding as he's about to head off and Felix turns to Bond asking if he can tell Della. Bond says no, that he's coming with. Felix agrees, but only as an observer. Bond refers to the friend as Sharky the uh, third wheel there, who is stuck telling the bride to be the bad news. Uh, needless to say, he's not too happy. But so Bond and Felix board the chopper with the DEA agents, and it takes off. We then cut to a quaint room in a tropical area. It's dark, but the daylight lights up the room as the door is busted open. A woman and a man sit up in bed. The man reaches for a gun, but the guy that busted the door open shoots at his hand, causing him to recoil. This guy is Franz Sanchez. The man in bed stands up and Sanchez walks up, punching the man in the stomach. He then tosses them to his goons. He tears down the lace covering over the bed and his face comes into the light. He stares at the woman, asking her what he promised her, his heart. He looks at his second, at his second Dario, and tells him to give her his heart. Dario pulls out a switchblade is ready to cut the man when the lady asks him to stop. They drag the guy out as Sanchez sits down on the bed. The lady says she didn't mean any harm. Tells her it's okay and that we all make mistakes. He caresses her face and she gives him a hug. He tells her that her escapades are getting more creative. He then takes out a whip, which looks something like a reptile tail, and whips her with it as she cries in pain. We then cut back to the wedding, where Sharky is waiting impatiently. He sees the bride's limo pulls up, and he opens the door, asking the driver to drive around the block again. Nella asks, what about the guests? Sharky shrugs, and her dad says they told her this was a mistake. Sharky closes the door, and they drive off. So in the helicopter, Felix gives Bond a gun, telling him that it's just in case. 
They fly toward the arch strip. Sanchez is in a jeep with his men and jumps out into the brush. As Bond sits back and watches, Felix runs with the DA agents to infiltrate the private jet. Although Felix, for some reason, decides not to wear a bulletproof vest. So I guess he doesn't mind if he gets blood on his tux, his wedding tux. So uh, the pilots hold their hands up as one agent checks the plane. He says Sanchez isn't there. The jeep with Sanchez's goons shows up and starts shooting at them. Bond ducks into the helicopter and fires back as the jeep drives off. Felix and the agents fire back as well. Although Felix seems to opt for the shoot-from-the-hip approach with the machine gun rather than actually aiming the damn thing. So they all get back in the helicopter and chase after the jeep. Bond instructs the pilot to lower the chopper, and he leaps out. Tucks and rolls, landing behind some barrels. The goons in the jeep shoot at Bond, and Bond shoots back, hitting the jeep. This causes it to careen out of control and crash into some boats. The goons get out and take off, leaving the lady behind. She stumbles out, and Bond asks if she's okay, but she tells him to go away. Fine, screw you, lady. So they hear a plane starting up nearby and run through the brush. They spot Sanchez taking off in a Cessna. Bond, Felix, and the agents get back on the chopper and start taking off towards Sanchez's plane. Felix says he'll be in Cuban airspace in 20 minutes. Bond says he hasn't gotten away and starts putting on a harness. Felix asks what the hell he's doing. Bond says to Felix, let's go fishing. He grabs the chopper's winch and hooks himself up to it. They fly over the plane and lower Bond down. They manage to get Bond onto the tail of the plane, much to Sanchez's surprise. I guess Sanchez just assumed that because he's in the airplane that, you know, he's he's away scot-free at this point. So Bond takes another winch and hooks the tail of the plane to it. Felix tells the pilots to reel him in, and they hoist the winch, causing the plane to sputter and stall. Sanchez is trapped as they drag the plane behind them. The chopper approaches over the church, and Bond and Felix parachute down, much to the excitement of the wedding crowd. They head inside. Parachute's still attached to him. Guys, you can, you can take those off now. You know. And then we cut to the opening credits, featuring Gladys Knight's powerful theme song. Now, this is another favorite of mine, and I think it's a terrific ballad. Uh, the theme song, is again, accompanied by Maurice Binder's incredible opening credits, features models dancing with and without guns, silhouetted shots, and lots of camera imagery with a unique 007 logo floating around at times. I don't think this is the best of Bender's, but it's still quite good. Now, I should also note that the producers toyed with changing the spelling of the title from the traditional British spelling of license, with it ending in C-E, to the American spelling of it ending in S-E, as they felt it may confuse American audiences and hurt box office chances. Uh, they eventually realized that Americans aren't that stupid, and kept it with its original spelling. Now we then cut to an interrogation room at the DEA, DEA office. Three, two, one. We then cut to an interrogation room at a DEA office. An agent tells Sanchez he's facing 139 felony counts, saying that he would be in prison for the next 936 years. He adds that every one of his famous million-dollar bribes can't get him out of this one. Two, Sanchez replies. Agent asks what he's talking about, and Sanchez clarifies, two million to anyone who springs him. Agent gets upset, asking Sanchez if he thinks he's in some banana republic. He says that all his scumbag money won't do him any good here. Sanchez says, good, then he'll be going home soon. Agent gets angry and lunges at Sanchez, but another agent stops him. The agent says they have a nice, cozy cell for him at Quantico, and that he personally sees he's going to get there. 
We then cut to the wedding reception. Bond and Della are talking and laughing. She gives him a kiss, saying that it's custom for the bride to kiss the best man. Bond smiles and swings her around, nearly bumping into the wedding cake. Bond gives her a quick kiss, and Della asks him to fetch Felix as he's still in a study and they need to cut the cake. Bond says yes, joking that he'll do anything with a woman with a knife. Bond heads into Felix's study where Felix is meeting with a woman. Bond apologizes for interrupting, but Felix says it's okay as they're done. Felix calls her Pam and introduces her to Bond, but she coldly says goodbye and ignores Bond, walking out. Bond looks at Felix, but Felix says it's strictly business. Bond reminds Felix that he has a house full of guests waiting for him. Felix understands, but says that the department wants a full report yesterday. Bond sits down and lights a cigarette. Felix says they, they, they got lucky today as Sanchez has been a, away from his home base for years. Bond says that they could have extradited him, but Felix says not a chance as he's killed, intimidated, or bribed half the government officials from here to Chile. He says there's only one law down there, Sanchez's law, adding Roma o Plata, lead o Silva, Bond translates. The agent that was interrogating Sanchez comes in and gladhands Felix. Felix introduces the Bond as Ed Killifer. Ed looks at Bond and punches him in the arse, saying he must be Bond, the man who came along for the ride. Bond doesn't look amused by Killifer's greeting. Killifer says that they're taking Sanchez to Quantico this afternoon. Felix offers Killifer to stick around and have a drink, but Killifer declines, saying he has to get back. He just wanted to come by and kiss the bride. Killifer leaves, and Bond turns to Felix, telling him it's time to cut the cake, holding out the knife. Felix says Della must be ready to kill him as he takes a CD out of his computer and hides it within a portrait of Della that's on his desk. Well, then they cut the cake, and Sharky hands them a wedding gift, saying he tied them himself. Della asks what they are, and Felix comments that they're lures. Bond jokes that they'll keep him busy for a few days. Della remarks that there will be no fishing on their honeymoon. Back at the station, Sanchez is being loaded onto a truck while Killifer deals with the press. Reporters, reporters try to ask questions, but get no answers, as Sanchez is chained inside the back of an armored truck. Police escorts flank the truck as it takes off. Back at the reception, Felix and Della give Bond a gift. He opens it, revealing a silver-plated Dunhill unique lighter with an inscription that reads, James, love always, Della and Felix. Bond thanks him for the thoughtful gift. Bond tries it out, and a giant flame shoots out. Now, it's uncertain if this was intentional or not. I mean, given their genuine reactions, I want to say that the flame wasn't supposed to be that big and caught everyone by surprise. As the armored truck crosses the seven-mile bridge, Killifer rides up front with a rifle in his hand. Suddenly, he knocks out the driver with the butt of the gun and takes over. Now, the hit leaves a mark, so I'm guessing it's supposed to be blood, but it doesn't look quite genuine, as it looks like more like the butt of the gun got dipped in paint or something. As they approach a construction zone, Killifer veers off the bridge, and the truck sinks into the water. Scuba men approach and give Killifer and Sanchez oxygen breathers. Coast Guard helicopter approaches, having their scuba men jump in. The, the bad guy scuba men free Sanchez, and both he and Killifer escape in an underwater vessel. The, uh, the Coast Guard scuba divers must not be fast enough because they don't see a damn thing. Now back at Felix's house, the reception is over. Bond is about to leave, but Della stops him, saying she wants him to have something, knowing it's a tradition. She lifts her dress and pulls the garter off from around her leg. She says the next man who catches is the next one who... Bond cuts her off and suddenly says, no. He thanks her and starts to leave. She calls out his name and tosses the garter anyway. He catches it and smiles. 
He gets into a 1988 Lincoln Mark 7 and takes off. Della asks Felix if anything is wrong. Felix says he was married once a long time ago. So they are going to continue this up with Bond formerly being married to his late wife, Tracy, even though she died in 1969. Well, I mean, I guess it's not that far-fetched. This Bond would have been in his early 20s at that time. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the Bond timeline is like one of those shifting timelines, like in The Simpsons, you know, how in the episodes from the late 80s through the 90s had Homer growing up in the 70s, but the newer episodes have him growing up in the 90s, and no one ever seems to age. <clears throat> so, anyway... Felix carries Della back into their room. Their joyful moment is cut short when they spot two men with guns in their room. Felix tells them to let her go as he's the one they want. Dario comes out from the shadows and knocks Felix out before going after Della. At a warehouse with a logo that reads Wavecrest, a man enters his office. This is Milton Crest. Uh, Sanchez is sitting there comfortably reading a newspaper. Crest asks if he's ready to go and that the batteries are recharged on the sub, adding that it'll take him the whole 12-mile limit. He says then it's a fast boat to Cuba and he'll be there by breakfast. Sanchez tells Crest that he's going to wait for Dario. Crest says he's crazy as he has everyone looking for him. He then asks about Killifer, thinking that having a cop around is nuts. Crest says he wants to deep-six him. Sanchez turns it down, saying he made a deal with the guy and he's going to honor it. Crest says he doesn't like it as he can finger him as he spent a fortune on his company. Sanchez gets up and approaches Crest, telling him to understand something, that loyalty is more important to him than money. He then instructs them to get Killifer. He does, and Killifer enters. Sanchez drops an enormously heavy suitcase on the table, telling him it's $2 million, all in 20s. He adds that it's very heavy but difficult to trace and tells him that he'll have someone pick him up. Sanchez asks Crest where Lupe is, referring to the woman from earlier. Chris says she's on the boat, and Sanchez says to keep her there. Dario enters and whispers to Sanchez. He's about to leave when he turns to Chris and tells him not to fool around with her. Chris laughs and asks if he's kidding, not after what he did with the guy from the Bahamas. Sanchez smiles and says, you liked my little Valentine, huh? Before leaving. <laughs> I mean, I like this Sanchez character to agree. He is definitely one of the best Bond villains, but damn, he is ruthless and sadistic. So they head into the warehouse where Felix is brought in, tied up. Sanchez reveals a large slab of meat. Felix asks where his wife is. So they head into the warehouse where Felix is brought in, tied up. Sanchez's men hook up the slab of meat to one end of the rope, which is attached to a pulley system. They open up the floor, revealing a shark tank below. As Felix is being hooked up to the other side of the rope, he sees Killifer enter, much to his surprise. Killifer says, they push Felix over, and he dangles over the shark tank with the slab of meat in the water. Felix says that killing him won't stop anything. Sanchez tells him that there are worse things than dying. Sharks start eating away at the meat, and Felix slowly gets lowered into the tank. As Felix goes into the water, he tells Sanchez you'll see him in hell. Sanchez says, no, that today is the first day of the rest of your life. Felix screams as a shark bites into his leg, blood gushing everywhere. Now, this is actually one of the scenes that had to be edited to avoid the R rating uh, I mentioned earlier. In the uncensored version, which you can actually see if you have the Ultimate Edition DVD, uh, thankfully I do, so I got to see it in its gory glory. You actually see the shark tearing off Felix's leg like this is a Jaws movie or something. So the, basically with the edited version, you just they stay above water and you just kind of see some like red water 
indicating the blood and stuff like that. And of course, you know, Felix screaming and stuff. So uh, Sanchez smiles and Dario chuckles while Crest looks disgusted and Killifer can't watch. He like runs off like he's about to vomit. After the screams start to die down, Sanchez has them reel him back up. At Miami Dade Airport, my aunt Bond pulls up at the terminal. This is how it was back then. You just dump your rental off at the curbside. I mean, I would have thought you still had to return it to the correct area. Bond grabs his suitcase and heads into the airport, approaching the Pan Am ticket counter. Uh, again, some nice product placement there. He sees police and agents going crazy in there and asks the ticket lady what's going on. She says that some big drug dealer escaped. Bond looks worried, and when the lady looks up to ask him if he wants smoking or non-smoking, he's gone. Well, it's a good thing he left his rental outside. So Bond races back to Felix's house and heads inside. The place has been ransacked. He spots Della lying on the bed and runs to her. She's dead. Bond starts getting pissed. He heads into Felix's study and sees the place has been turned upside down. He spots a body lying on the couch and pulls back the blanket. It's Felix. A note covered in blood is attached to him and reads, He disagreed with something that ate him. Bond furiously crumples up the note. No, Bond, don't! You, God, you have such a way with the strain evidence. Felix starts groaning and moving with Bond, asking him if he's all right. Felix is weakly calling out for Della. The phone rings and Bond answers. The man on the other end asks where Felix has been, but Bond tells him to quickly call an ambulance. Later, the police and paramedics have arrived. Felix is loaded onto the ambulance and takes off. Inside, Bond finishes speaking with some of the agents. An agent asks him to stick around as Sharky enters. Sharky asks how Felix is. Bond says his left leg is gone below the knee and that they might be able to save the arm. The agent talking to Bond says he can bet it was a chainsaw as the Colombians love to use them on informers. He adds that they sell more here than the state of Oregon. Over at the hospital, Bond and Sharky are visiting Felix, who's on life support. The doctor says he wishes he could be more helpful, but that they'll have to wait and see. Sharky says he knows a shark bite when he sees one. The DE agent that was with Bond and Felix earlier walks in and pulls Bond aside. He says that Sanchez has vanished and he has all of Felix's files. Bond demands they find him. The agent says that he's out of their jurisdiction. He adds that there's plenty of countries that will protect him and they can't even get an extradition. Bond says there are other ways, but the agent tells him just to forget about it. Bond gets upset and asks if he's just going to if he's just going to forget about it. The agent says he's not going to. Bond remarks that it looks like Sanchez's lawn operates north of the border as well. He then tells Sharky to let's go shark hunting, and they leave. They pull up outside the Wavecrest warehouse. Sharky says it's the last place in the Keys, and they'll have to try Miami next. Bond rings the bell. Inside, Crest has Killifer hide, saying he'll take care of him. A man opens the door and tells Bond they're closed. Bond stops and says, come all the way from London. He then hands the man a card, saying he's with Universal Exports, saying that they've been retained by the Regents Park Zoo to arrange a shipment of a Carcaridon Carcarius. The man doesn't know, understand the term, and Bond says it's a great white shark. Jeez, didn't you learn anything from Jaws 3D? You don't put great white sharks in captivity around people. So Crest interrupts, telling the man to let Bond in. Bond enters, and Crest tells him that, unfortunately, they sold all their sharks years ago, and they only do research now, showing them around the place a bit. This is a project to feed the third world. They feed maggots to a special breed of genetically engineered fish, using hormones to make them all male so they'll gain weight faster. 
Ah, uh, yes. Cure the world hunger problem by feeding them all genetically engineered fish. So Bond spots a mini-sub called the Shark Hunter 2 and asks if it's from his shark hunting days. Crest stammers and says, yeah, that he's actually selling it. Crest then says he's pretty busy and that they would have to do this another time. Bond thanks him for his time and tries to get a name, but Crest just says goodbye. Bond leaves. Later that night, Bond is still investigating. He spots the Shark Hunter 2 sub heading out. Inside, a worker tells Killifer that the sub will be back in three hours and takes him out. For some reason, the, the waiter holds up three fingers as if Killer wouldn't understand what the word three means. Huh? I always thought that was odd why they do that in movies. They hold up the number of fingers when they're actually saying it. It's like, yeah, we kind of know what you're saying. You don't need to illustrate it. Bond grabs a handful of maggots and throws it in the guy's face. The distraction allows Bond to hit the guard and flip over into the maggot drawer, knocking him out. Bond closes the door, clipping bon appetit. Other guards spot him and start shooting with machine guns, breaking the glass to a nearby aquarium. Bond sneaks up under the guard up on the catwalk and grabs a hook, grabbing him by the belt and pulling the guard into a tank full of electric eels. And then he became Electro. Oh, wait. Wrong movie. So Killer for Corners Bond with a gun and tells him to come by the doors, motioning to the ones on the floor. Bond asks if this is where he put his old buddy Felix. Killifer says it wasn't him, but he can chalk that one up to Sanchez and Crest. He sets his suitcase full of cash down and opens the doors to the shark tank. Suddenly, as if on cue, Sharky pops up through a hidden hatch in the floor, one that Killifer just happens to have his foot on. I mean, jeez, talk about your all-time deus ex machinas. Killifer loses his balance, and Bond lunges for him, knocking out his gun and punching. The punch sends Killifer over the shark tank, and he grabs onto the rope hanging overhead to prevent himself from falling in, his feet clinging to the edge. He tries to hold on and attempts to bribe Bond. He then tells him there's two million in the suitcase, and he'll split it with him. Bond picks up the suitcase and says, you want it? You keep it, old buddy. He then tosses the suitcase to him. It knocks Killifer off the edge, and he loses his grip on the rope, falling in. The suitcase opens and $2 million gets all wet as Killifer gets eaten. Sharky says that's a terrible waste. Three, two, one. Sharky says that's a terrible waste. Bond glares at him. Of money, he finishes. So the next morning, Bond walks along the docks. He approaches Sharky at his charter boat business and asks if he got any word on the wave crest. Sharky says it's a big marine... Three, two, one. Sharky says it's a big marine research vessel owned by Milton Crest. He says they're collecting specimens off the Quesal Bank. Bond asks how long will it take to get there. Sharky says about six hours. Bond says he's going to get a few things and he'll meet him back here. One of the DEA agents that Bond was with the other day spots Bond and asks to talk to him. He says M tells Bond to spare him the sentimental rubbish, state that Lighter knew the risks. Bond says, and what about his wife? M ignores the question and tells Bond that his Private vendetta of his could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. He reminds him that he has an assignment and that he's expected to carry it out objectively and professionally. Bond grits his teeth, looks squarely at M, and says, Then you have my resignation, sir. M scoffs him. We're not a country club, 007. Bond remains silent. M sternly tells Bond it's effective immediately, saying his license to kill is revoked and he is required to hand over his weapon. This is always the, one of the things that I always found fascinating about this film. I mean, this is the only film where Bond forcibly resigns and becomes a rogue agent. 
does toy with the notion of resigning and honor Majesty's secret service, but of course, money preventing money penny prevents that from happening. Now, this benefits because Bond has to rely solely on his wits, knowing he doesn't have the safety net of Her Majesty's government to fall back on. So, it kind of makes for a unique storyline. So, anyway, then M then reminds him that he's still bound by the Official Secrets Act. Bond chuckles and takes out his guns, and he guess it's a farewell to arms. So is that why they had it at the Hemingway house, this whole meeting? Because just so he could say that lame pun. So Bond hands over the gun as he's surrounded by two agents with guns. He kicks one in the stomach and knocks the other over before leaping over the railing and taking off into the dense brush. The agent's about to fire, but M stops him. God help you, Commander, he says to himself. I don't really quite get this. I mean, he was just resigning. He just said, I'm resigning. And he handed over his gun and everything. He, you know, that they should have just walked away. I don't know why they felt like, you know, like they're gonna take Bond into custody or something like that. He, you know, he's not. He didn't just go and be a rogue agent. He eventually becomes one, kind of down the road. But uh, he just said he had his resignation. So, and and M said effective immediately. So you know, it was. I don't know what. The, what this what all that all that was about so aboard the wavecrest vessel crest peeks in on lupe and enters the room while some commotion goes on below deck he sits down and caresses her leg telling him she caused a lot of trouble she says he's borracho and tells him to go to bed uh, he ignores her and says that that's when sanchez heard she ran away he went nuts he says three two one she says it's none of his business he gets belligerent and says that it's his business when her stupid little tricks get Sanchez arrested and he has to put his organization at risk to get him out. Crest then tells her it'll cost her. She gets up to leave saying Sanchez will give him money. Crest says he doesn't work that way, telling her she better watch herself. He adds that he's known him for a long time and he's seen girls like her come and go. Lupe gets upset and reiterates that he's drunk, telling him to leave. She then opens the door for him and tells him to stop peeking through her windows. Chris asks why she's so stuck up, telling her that he fixed that phony beauty contest she won. She goes to smack him, but he stops her. Sailor approaches Crest and tells him that they're picking up something large on the monitor. So Crest heads down to the control room and takes a look at the monitor. He gets upset, saying it's just a manta ray, then advises the sailor that they're going to start loading now. I mean, they really needed Crest to come down there and spot that, and I think the captain of a boat would know what a manta ray looks like, but uh, okay. Unless he was just looking at the radar screen or something like that, yeah. Underwater, there is indeed a manta ray, but underneath, it's Bond. He spots a mooring rope attached to the mini-sub and grabs on. The mini-sub docks in a service area, and a wa worker walks up to it. Bond quickly jumps out of the water and pulls the guy in, knocking him out. He gets out and grabs the body, hiding it in a pressurized tank. As Bond sneaks around, some sentries hear some groaning and find the guy in the tank. Bond sneaks into Crest's cabin, only to find Lupe in there. He tells her not to make a sound and asks what she's doing there. She says that Crest let her use his room. Bond asks where Sanchez is, and she says he's not on board. Bond holds a knife up to her throat, and she says she doesn't know where he is. He counters that she's his girlfriend, and she tells him that he doesn't tell her anything. Suddenly, there's a knock on the door. It's Crest. He asks Lupe to open as he has to talk to her. Bond tells her to answer it, which she does. Crest glances down at her near-naked body, covered only by her bed. She, God, what a perv. And he asks if she's seen anyone suspicious. She says no, that she was sleeping, and tells him to go away. Sailor approaches and says that they are here. 
Cress advises Lupe to bolt her door. After she does, Bond notices the whip marks on her bass, asking if Sanchez whipped her. She says it was her fault, that she did not something wrong and made him angry. Bond hears a boat horn sound and looks outside. He sees men towing in a load, Sharky being part of that load. He, and he's dead. Cress tells the man, good job, and the man says, guess what? His name was Sharky. Like, honestly, how did they know that Sharky was part of this? I mean, he could have just been some, you know, he was just sitting off in a boat somewhere. So Bond's rage gets fueled even more. He tells Lupe to find herself another lover. She asks Bond if you men know any other way. Bond stops and looks at her, telling her she seems to like Sanchez's way. She says he knows nothing. She then pleads with Bond to leave, saying that if he stays, they both will be killed. Bond exits under the deck of the boat and sees the scuba diver that was joking about Sharky's death. He picks up a harpoon gun, and when the man sees him, he says, Compliments of Sharky, or for shooting it into the man. Diver falls off into the water. Damn, Bond's really getting cold-blooded here. I mean, keeps his up. He'll be a regular chasing four years or something. So Crest then turns around and sees the man fall into the water. Bond dives into the water as Crest shoots at him. Bond takes the dead diver's mask and oxygen tank and puts it on. Other goons don't see anything and say he must have drowned. Crest says he's not to be not to be so sure and tells him to find him. Crest sees a seaplane approaching and tells him to launch the Sentinel. The mini-sub is launched and automatically operated via remote control. Bond spots it approaching. Men from the plane unload large bushels of money wrapped in blue plastic and start loading cocaine onto the Sentinel. They close the hatch and the Sentinel returns to the wave crest. Bond swims up to it and grabs onto the mooring rope. He pulls himself up to it and opens the hatch, stabbing into the cocaine. The man controlling the sentinel spots Bond, unseen thanks to the mask, on the camera, dicing up the blow. They surface the sentinel and Bond swims off. He hides among the rocks, but a diver spots him, shooting a harpoon at him. Harpoon barely misses him, but the diver attacks, cutting Bond's air hose with a knife. Bond knocks out the diver and quickly services. He fires a harpoon into the plane hooks onto it, and Bond uses the gun as a makeshift water ski tow rope and water skis barefoot behind the plane. He grabs onto one of the plane's floats as it takes off. So the pilots spot him hang on and attempt to jostle the plane to get him to fall off. Bond hangs on for dear life. He manages to climb in through the hatch as the co-pilot opens the plane door and leans out to see if he's still on there. Bond sneaks up from behind him and pulls the emergency door release lever, causing the door and the co-pilot to fall out. Bond attacks the pilot, who pulls out a gun. Bond grabs a cube of cash and uses it as body armor as the pilot fires his gun to it. He hits the pilot with a stack, and it breaks open, money flying out everywhere. Bond is nearly knocked out of the plane, but manages to hold on and pull himself back into the cockpit. He kicks the pilot in the face and knocks him out. As the plane starts to quickly descend, he pulls the pilot out of the plane and takes control. He smiles and laughs as he sees all those cubes of cash stacked in the back. He flies off with the money as Crest and his men look on in disbelief. Now back at Felix's house, Bond sneaks past the police barricade and picks the lock. Where did he hide the plane? I mean, it's not exactly subtle as he's missing a door and has stacks of cash in it. He heads into the study and pulls out the CD that Felix had hidden behind the photo of Della. He sits down at the computer and puts it onto the CD tray. Man, talk about 80s technology. You should see the size of that CD tray. It's massive. I mean... Looks like you could fit a 45 RPM vinyl record in there. And just for a 4.7 inch CD. 
He loads it and it immediately pulls up a file on Sanchez, including his Swiss accounts, U.S. accounts, warrants, indictments, informants. Amazing. He didn't have to open anything. It just popped up. So he pulls up the list of informants and notices that they're all marked deceased, except for one. Uh, P. Bouvier is marked active. He opens up the file and re reads that it's Pam Bouvier and that she's a CAA contract pilot who's familiar with the Sanchez operation in Isthmus City. He also reads that there was a note that her and Felix were supposed to meet Thursday after midnight at a place called the Barrelhead in the Bimini Islands of the Bahamas. So we, then we see Bond pulling up to the Barrelhead bar and tossing the mooring rope to a dock worker. He tips the man well and asks him to put her stern in. Where did he get the boat? We find out the later that he uses Sanchez's drug money to get set up. So did he use the money on the buy this boat too? I need answers. So Bond heads inside. It's a rough, seedy joint. Ladies dance on top of the tables in bikinis. Bond asks the bart bartender about the whereabouts of a bouvier, and the bartender points to a table. He walks up. It's the same lady Bond saw Felix talking to the other day of the wedding. Bond says it's an unexpected pleasure, and Pam asks where Lighter is. Bond says he's in the hospital in intensive care. And that that's where she'll be, too, if she doesn't get out of there fast. She tells her that Sanchez has Felix's files and that her name is all over them. She said that she knew something was wrong, then motions the two goons sitting at the bar. She states that they've been sitting there for hours, probably waiting to see who would meet her. A server walks up, and they order two buds with limes. Okay. First of all, the only good beer with lime is a Corona. Secondly, Bond was just telling her they need to get out of here. She knows that two goons have been watching her. And then they order beers? What are they thinking? So Pam spots Dario entering, calling him bad news. She says he was with the Contras before they kicked him out, and he was just, be just the kind of guy that Sanchez would send. She asks Bond if he's carrying and reveals his pistol in his shoulder holster. Pam tisks and shakes her head, showing him the shotgun she has in her lap. She says if they start shooting, just hit the deck and stay there. Hey, wait a minute. Bond never hits the deck. Dario and some other meathead approach Bond and Pam and sit down. Dario refers to Pam by name and asks if he knows her from somewhere. She says no, but Dario says he does, stating she used to run charter planes for some friends of his. The meathead with Dario keeps staring at Bond like some weirdo. Bond does his best to ignore the weirdo. Dario then says he has a job for him, puts his hand on hers. Bond shouts for him to take his hands off her, saying she's with him. Dario says, no one's talking to you, gringo. Pam then shoves the barrel of the shotgun in Dario's chest, saying that Bond is with her and tells Dario to keep his hands on the table. The server brings back the beers and says it's 350. Oh, man, the good old days. She then asks if their friends want something. The meat head says he'll get it and stands up to attack to pull out a gun, but Bond quickly elbows him in the stomach and slams his head down on the table before pushing him away. The meathead leans back in the chair in a daze. Bond tells the server that he's had enough and to run a tab. Pam asks how Bond got here, and he said by boat. She asks where it is, and he says it's out back, behind this wall, motioning to the wall behind them. Dario stands up to attack, and Pam fires the shotgun. It hits a chain holding up a stuffed marlin, which swings down and hits some patrons. Dario pulls out his knife, doing some weird stance like he's about to interpret a dance or something. He lunges at Bond, but Bond sidesteps the knife and punches Dario in the face. Another goon attacks with a bottle, and Bond knocks him out too. Pam thanks Bond as the entire bar erupts into a brawl. I kind of find it hilarious that the dancers keep dancing despite what's going on, as if they'll get in trouble if they stop. A goon grabs Pam from behind, but she 
flips him over his shoulder, and he painfully lands on a table. Dario gets up and attempts to hit Pam with a pool cue, but she ducks and uppercuts Dario in the face. Bond gets attacked from behind, but manages to punch the living daylights out of him. Uh, no pun intended. Another goon grabs the stuffed Marlin and attempts to stab Bond with it. Bond holds up a chair and the nose pierces through it, inches from Bond's head. Pam grabs a bottle and smashes it over the goon's head. Bond says, touche. Pam nods her head in agreement. Another goon runs up and punches Bond in the face, sending him reeling back. Pam whips the guy in the... Guy in the... Three, two, one. Pan whips the guy in the back with the shotgun. Another goon swings a pool cue, nearly hitting the dancers. It's at this point they finally stop dancing. Three, two, one. Another goon swings a pool cue, nearly hitting the dancers. And of course, it's at this point they finally stop dancing. Like they just realized what's going on. Bond knocks him out, and Pam shoots a hole in the wall, telling Bond to get the boat started. The brawl stops as Pam slowly backs out. Bond starts the engine as we see he's bleeding. Bond bleeds? This is like the only the second time we've seen him actually bleed, but the first time in the mouth after being in a fist fight. The only time, I, at least I recall anyway, right off the top of my head, is in Live and Let Die when Kananga cuts Bond's arm to attract the sharks. So anyway, Pam runs out into the boat. As she does, Dario leans out the hole in the wall and fires a gun, hitting Pam in the back. She slumps forward into the boat as Bond takes off. Bond fires off a few rounds as cover. Another goon comes and fires a machine gun, hitting the back of the boat. Bond shoots and kills that dude. So let me get this straight. Bond, who's like an expert marksman, is standing still and misses Dario while aiming, but is able to whip around while the boat is moving, while he's driving the damn thing, and kills a guy with one shot. Selective marksmanship, I suppose. <laughs> Dario smiles a very weird, creepy smile as they drive off. Aboard the boat, Bond is surprised when Pam starts growing and sitting up. He tells her not to move, but she says to relax. She's wearing a bulletproof vest. Then she adds that this Kevlar is great. I mean, was, was this product placement? I want to say yes, because her line comes off as more of a something you'd hear in a public service announcement about how Kevlar bulletproof vests save lives. So Bond gets upset with her and says she's bloody lucky to be alive. She says it's not luck, it's experience. Bond says if it was a few inches higher, it would have been her head. Well, let's all be grateful that Dario was a bad shot then. She scoffs and says that she just saved his life back there, and if it wasn't for her, his ass would have been nailed to the wall. Bond scoffs back and questions her. You saved my life? He shakes his head and says she picked a tough business pick and tells her to leave it to the professionals. She counters, showing that she was an army pilot, that she's flown to the toughest hellholes in South America, so he should lecture her about professionalism. <clears throat> you go, Pam. So suddenly, the engine starts sputtering and a beeping noise emits from the control panel. Bond taps on the gauges. The fuel gauge is on E. Pam says, out of gas? I haven't heard that one in a long time. Bond says, I must have hit the fuel line. Bond then asks for her help, saying he needs a complete rundown on Sanchez's operation. He'll also need a flight to Isthmus City, private. He adds that no one must know he's left. Um, Pam asks why he wants to go there. Bond ignores the question and instead says he'll pay her well. 
She realizes he's going after Sanchez, and Bond asks if she'll help him. She ignores his question and asks how many men he's got. Bond sighs and says, just you and me. Pam laughs, saying that Sanchez has an entire army down there. Bond says she just has to fly him in and leave, and he'll give her $50,000. She says it's not that easy. She ends up making false flight plans, payoffs to Isthmus City. She can't do a job like that for less than 100000 Bond counters with sixty k. She counters with ninety. He counters with seventy. She says eighty as they start to move closer to one another. Bond says seventy-five. She asks if he'll pay for the fuel. Bond says she'll get the plane. She wipes the blood off his lip. Uh, wouldn't it be dry by now? And then they kiss. Bond jokingly asks why she doesn't wait until she's asked, and she smiles, saying, "Well, why don't you ask me?" They smile and kiss. Bond pushes her onto the steering wheel, which blows the horn. She jumps, and they laugh before kissing again. And Presumably drift ashore while having sex. Drugs, you know, drug smuggling again as a as a plot device. So it's a continuing trend with the the Bond franchise. Any kind of smuggling, it's just another smuggling plot. Dates all the way back to 1964's Goldfinger. So Bond and Pam ride down the road. In a 1980s Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, as posters of President Hector Lopez are just plastered everywhere. They get out at the Hotel de Isthmus and check into a suite. Concierge shows them the room, and Bond asks for a Bollinger RD champagne. Because it wouldn't be a Bond movie without product placement for Bollinger champagne. The concierge then asks if they could sign the registration cards. Bond says his executive secretary, Miss Kennedy, will take care of that, motioning to Pam. Pam glares at him, but signs anyway. Bond opens up a suitcase and takes out some bills, tipping the porter and the concierge. After the leave, Pam says it's Ms. Kennedy, and why can't you be my executive secretary? Bond laughs. He says they're south of the border, what's still a man's world. You know, actually, I would love to see Bond posing as an assistant or someone who's not in charge. I think it would actually be a pretty clever disguise. So Bond flips open the suitcase, and Pam's eyes widen when she sees all the money. Bond thanks her and tells her her job is finished as he grabs several stacks of cash. Pam says she wants to stay, but Bond declines, saying it's too dangerous. He hands her the cash and says that enough people have been killed already. She grabs the money, angrily telling him not to talk to her about danger. She says she won't be safe until Sanchez is dead and that he could use her help. I mean, she does have a point, Bond. She's already proven herself to be pretty resilient. So Bond sighs and nods. He hands her another stack of bills and tells her that if she's going to be his executive secretary, she better look the part and tells her to go buy some clothes. She snatches the money and heads out. Bond asks her what bank Sanchez uses as he needs to make a deposit. Pam says it's the largest one in town, Banco de Isthmus. She adds that he owns it. Bond pulls up to the bank and heads in. He meets with the bank president, telling him that he wants to make a small deposit. The president says that he's sure his people downstairs can take care of it, but spots an assistant dropping a heavy suitcase down. He stops and smiles, inviting Bond to sit down. We then see a young guy showing a group of businessmen around the bank, stating that they operate the world's largest private investment fund. Sanchez approaches and jokes that their biggest problem is that they don't know what to do with all the money. The men laugh as the young men explain that they have a cash surplus of $10 million a day, which they ship through the bank to the U.S. Federal Reserve. This establishes credits that can be used for any legitimate investment. 
Sanchez jokes that someone has to help the gringos with their trade deficit. The men laugh again. The president and his secretary finish counting all of Bond's money. They don't have digital money counters there. And tells a teller to make a deposit slip for Senior Bond in the amount of $4,900,000. Bond adds that there will be additional monthly deposits in the same amount. President says, of course, and assures Bond that Banco de Ismas have experience in handling accounts of this nature. Pam enters, dressed in a suit dress, complete with a haircut, short and close-cropped. Bond looks transfixed when he sees her, as if he can't believe the transformation. She introduces herself to the president as Miss Kennedy. Bond stands and says he would appreciate it if he could establish a line of credit for him at the casino. Two million dollars. President says it's not a problem, that he has excellent collateral. He also adds that the chairman also owns the casino. Pam says, well, that's convenient. In Sanchez's office, he sits watching televangelist Professor Joe Butcher on TV while an iguana rests on his shoulders. The young man from earlier sits at a table crunching some numbers. Lupe enters in a red dress. Sanchez asks if she's okay, and she says she's fine. He tells her that Crest called him from the boat with the story about someone ripping him off. She says she didn't see anything as he stayed in her cabin most of the time. She looks down, worried. He tilts her head up, asking her what's the matter. She says she can't stand that thing, referring to the iguana. So Bond enters the casino in a black tux and asks for a private blackjack table. The pit boss acknowledges. Up in Sanchez's office, the young man tells Sanchez that they can raise the price to $22,000 per kilo this month. Sanchez, he likes that. Man picks up the phones, introducing himself as Truman Lodge, and says that the price is $22,000. We see a man writing the number on a cue card and showing it to the professor. He recites the price, saying that the goal for each of their meditation chapters. He asks the viewers to go to the phone and help out before concluding with, bless your hearts. Bond and Pam sit at a blackjack table by themselves. Bond asks for half a million. Sanchez's office, the professor says they just received a $500 pledge from their Manhattan chapter. Truman Lodge gets excited, saying he knew they would go for it, commenting on the amount of 500 kilos. Sanchez laughs and says that the professor cracks him up. The phone rings and Truman Lodge answers. The man on the other end asks for Sanchez and Truman Lodge gives him the phone. The man informs him of Bond, saying the guy just dropped half a million and wants to play no limit. Sanchez asks where and the man says table two. Sanchez watches on the security monitor. The man says he plays like a real jerk-off. What the hell does that mean? I mean, besides, you shouldn't be judging the people that put money into your casino. It's kind of like the business right there. Another man at Sanchez's office says that the, that's the guy that flew in on a private plane and made a deposit at the bank, saying it's nearly $5 million. Sanchez looks concerned, but says to let him play. Bond plays the whole table, betting 100000 on each hand. He doubles down on one hand and splits another. Pit boss gulps as Bond wins all hands. Bond smiles and works... Pam smiles and works to contain her excitement as Bond collects his chips. On the TV, Professor Joe says that their Chicago chapter just made a $1,000 double pledge. So, $2,000? Truman Lodge gets excited, telling Sanchez that they're all accepting the new price. The pit boss, still on the phone with Sanchez, says that the British guy is up half a million dollars and asks Sanchez if he wants him to close the table. Sanchez says no and hangs up. As Sanchez eyeballs the security monitor. He tells the guy to have Lupe come in there. At the table, Bond wins again. But Pam comments on being good and asks if he's going to share that with her. Bond gives her a look and then looks up at the croupier. 
Lupe stands in their place. Juan looks surprised to see her. Bond then asks Pam to get him a medium dry martini. Pam asks why he doesn't answer the server, but Bond cuts her off and tells her shaken, not stirred. Pam, upset, gets up to fulfill his request. As she walks away, another man in a tux approaches and watches Bond's hand. Bond tells Lupe that she's very professional. He says she used to work here. Bond asks if he's going to win or lose. She says lose, but not by much. Pam approaches the bar, giving a look in Bond's direction. She tells the bartender to get a martini, shaken, not stirred. She makes hand motions to illustrate the shaken, not stirred part. The thing is, if she's worked for the CA out of various countries, how does she not know how to speak Spanish? You think she would have picked up on the language, especially since she spent so much time in South America. So, I don't know. Maybe she just never bothered. So Bond loses another hand. Lupe says it looks like your luck has changed. Bond asks if that's why he sent her there. She nods and says also to get more info on him. Bond says that perhaps he should quit for the night. Bond gets up to leave, and Lupe runs up to him. Dude, you just left all your money there on the table. She tells him that he should just head out of there, go straight to the airport, and never come back. Bond and Lupe move to a bar, and Bond asks where Sanchez is. She says he's up in his office and that he's been there the whole time as he's preparing for a big meeting with some Orientals. Bond asks if she told Sanchez about the wave crest. She said she told him nothing, then tells him to go. She gets up to leave, but Bond stops her and says that they should take him to Sanchez. She asks if he's loco and says that he'll get them both killed. Bond won't take no for an answer and grabs Lupe by the arm as they head out. Pam sees them leave just as the martini arrives and cheers herself before taking a drink in one gulp, followed by a disgusted look on her face as if she just drank lake water. So Lupe brings Bond to Sanchez's office, where he is immediately frisked before entering. The goon finds Bond's gun and his passport. After being frisked, he's brought into Sanchez's office. You can still hear Professor Joe yammering on the TV, asking to send $1, send 50 cents, whatever you can give. Sanchez asks Bond to wait a moment as the show is almost over and men close the doors for privacy. Professor Joe begins hawking a book of his, saying that it has sold a quarter of a million copies and states that anyone who sends in a $100 pledge will automatically receive a personally autographed copy of his book, The Secrets of Cone Power Revealed. So whoopee. <laughs> Actually, that title is pretty hilariously cheesy. Kind of want the poster. <laughs> Bond walks to the window and peers outside. Now, I want to say we have some random blatant product placement here, but I can't seem to find the company anywhere online, so I'm not entirely sure. When Bond looks out the window, we get a clear shot of a sticker on the window that reads Armor Light 3. I'm not sure if it's just a if it was just a made-up company for this. Or if it was a popular bulletproof glass company from the 80s that's just no longer around or what. I mean, I did find a company called Armor Light, but they make durable watches and not glass. So. Well, I don't know. It's just interesting seeing that sticker there for no apparent reason. So Sanchez directs his attention to Bond and sits at his desk. Bond goes to shake his hand, but a guy stops Bond and directs him to sit. Another goon hands Bond's passport to Sanchez. He flips through it and says he's a well-traveled man. Sanchez compliments him on doing well at the tables and says he figured that his luck was going to change. Side glancing at Lupe. Just say something about Bond's hairdo throughout these scenes. When he has his hair slicked back all the way, especially with Dalton's widow's peak, he comes off more like Dracula in the need of a haircut. Hair starts kind of poofing out from the sides and the proportions just look a little off, almost like, like a mushroom type head. 
So anyway, Sanchez says it's a wise gambler who knows when his luck has run out. Sanchez holds up Bond's Walter PPK and asks, why the gun? Bond says that in his business, you prepare for the unexpected. Sanchez asks, what business is that? To which Bond replies that he helps people with problems. Sanchez smiles and asks if he's a problem solver. Bond says, more like a problem eliminator. Sanchez laughs. He then asks Bond if he's in town on business. Bond says he's temporarily unemployed. He adds that he was hoping to find work here. Sanchez says it's difficult to obtain a work permit in Isthmus. says one has to show a special talent that people don't have. Bond looks around at the goons and says, that shouldn't be too difficult. Sanchez gets up and approaches Bond, saying he has big cojones, stating he comes to his place without references, carrying a piece, and throwing around a lot of money. He adds that nobody saw him come in, and nobody can see him leave. Bond smiles and tells Sanchez that he can be a useful man in his position. Sanchez nods and says he'll hold on to his passport for a few days, and then they'll talk again. He then asks, tells Bond, three, two, one. He then tells Bond that he won't need a gun in Smith as it's a very safe city. Bond gets up to leave and Sanchez is welcome to the casino at all times before shaking his hand. Bond leaves and Sanchez hands the passport over to his head of security, asking to have Bond checked out. So Bond and Pam leave the casino. Pam asks what he found out. Bond says that he's sitting behind two inches of bulletproof glass and that he would need a cannon to get to him. They get back in the rolls and head back to the hotel. The man that was watching Bond at the blackjack table watches as they leave. Bond enters the hotel and is told by the clerk that his uncle has arrived and that he put him in the suite. Bond and Pam get in the elevator and Pam asks about his uncle and Bond says, we'll make it a proper family reunion before asking for a gun. Pam tears away the bottom part of her dress so it's above the knee and considerably shorter. Takes a small gun out of her thigh holster. She grins as she hands it to Bond, who seems to be more focused on her legs at this point than on the gun. Focus, Bond! He has Pam wait outside as he heads into the door. He hears someone opening it and shoves the door open, pushing the person back where they flip over a chair and onto the floor. Bond holds the gun on him, but pulls back when he sees who it is. It's Q. Really, 007? Q quips as he gets up. Bond asks, what the hell he's doing here? Saying he might have killed him. Q says he's on leave and thought he would pop up and see how he's getting along. Bond asks how he found him, and Q says money pet him to him. She's worried sick about him. Bond turns on the light and tells Q that there's no place for him here and requests he go home. Q tells Bond not to be an idiot. He adds that he knows exactly what he's up to and that he's, you're going to need my help. Q further quips, saying that if it wasn't for Q Branch, you'd be dead long ago. I kind of love this line, but really doesn't add much credibility to Bond or any of the other double O's for that matter. I mean, sure, I won't deny that Q's gadgets have gotten Bond out of several scrapes, but Bond's wits also certainly played a part in his survival. I mean, you can't take all the credit, Q. So Q then pops open a travel bag where a bevy of seemingly ordinary items are inside. He says it's everything for man on holiday. Pulls out an alarm clock. Says it's an explosive alarm clock. Guaranteed never to wake up anybody who uses it. He hands Bond a toothpaste tube, saying it's dentonite toothpaste to be used sparingly. Now, 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 there's no product placement here. There is a company called Bentonite that makes toothpaste, but dentonite is completely made up for the film. He says it's the latest in plastic explosive. Bond says he could do with some plastic. The door bursts open, and Bond whirls around, aiming the gun again. It's only Pam. She lowers her gun, saying that she thought there would be a mess to clean up. 
Q looks inquisitive about the lady in their presence. Bond introduces Pam to Q, saying he's his uncle. Then Q said, tells Q that this is Miss Kennedy, his cousin. Q shakes her hand, jokingly stating that they must be related. He then tells Bond to pay attention as Bond closes the door to the room. He pulls out a video camera and says it looks like an ordinary camera. Pam asks what kind of film it takes, 120? Q says no, it's .220, high velocity. He opens the film case to reveal the bullets. Bond holds onto the camera. Q says it's a signature gun and the handle is an optical palm reader. He has Bond grip it. He plugs a cord into the bottom of the handle and presses some buttons on a keypad. He says that once it's programmed, nobody can use the gun but him. We see the lights on the side blinking red, and then they turn green after it's been programmed. Pam picks up a Polaroid Instant camera and tells them to smile. Q pushes Bond out of the way and shouts to Pam not to use the flash. A laser beam emits from the flash and cuts into a portrait of the Isthmus City president on the wall. Q gets upset as they see the glass in the frame break. He snatches the camera out of her hand, telling her to stop filling with things she doesn't understand. Pam grabs a photo that emerges from the camera and looks at it. It's an x-ray of Q, Bond, and for some reason, the photograph. God, this bit always never made sense to me. Why would it show the bone structure of the president in the photo when it's just that, a photograph? Are there bones inside the picture? Is he actually just standing there the entire time with his head poking through a square hole in the wall? So anyway, Q grabs the photo from her as well. Bond says that we should all get some rest and that we have a long, hard day ahead of us. Three, two, one. Bond says that we should all get some rest and that we have a long, hard day ahead of us tomorrow. Bond goes to head to the master bedroom, but Pan beats him to it, closing the door, so she says, Good night, Mr. Bond. Bond looks over at the adjacent room with two beds. He sighs as Q goes in and says, I hope you don't snore, Q. That night in Sanchez's office, Sanchez meets with several Oriental businessmen. He introduces Truman Lodge and his head of security, Colonel Heller, whom was spotted with Sanchez during the meeting with Bond. Sanchez welcomes him, stating this is a historic moment. East meets West, jokingly saying that the drug dealers of the world unite, to which the men laugh. Outside, Q waits by the rolls, posing as a chauffeur. Inside the casino, Bond approaches Pam and sets down a stack of plaques, those square casino chips, and tells her it's a bonus, and requesting that she and Q fly out of there. Is this the same night or a different night? I mean, last we saw them, they were going to bed, but they appear to be wearing the same thing. So Pam says she wants to stay and help. Bond declines her assistance, saying he works better alone. What has she really, honestly, what has she really done up to this point? I mean, she made all the arrangements to get there, but after that, she really hasn't done much. Give her something to do! So she looks worried as Bond grabs a tray of empty drinks and, posing as a waiter, makes his way to the back. He grabs a service cart and heads into an elevator. The elevator stops at the top, but a sentry only spots the cart. We see Bond climbing up out of the elevator shaft. He makes it to the roof and pulls out a small bag and starts attaching a rappelling line to a bar. We see him very carefully pulling out the rope from the case. Why is he being so delicate with it? Did you make an explosive rope? So in Sanchez's office, he continues his meeting with the drug dealers. He says that there's a lot of cash in this business and a lot with their hands out. The man that was spying on Bond at the blackjack table earlier is seated there, and he replies, in a word, bribery. Sanchez says that he took the words right out of his pocket, which the men laugh. He continues talking as Bond repels down the outside of the building, stopping right outside the office window. As Bond stops on the ledge, some pigeons fly off. Bond quickly hides as he spots Heller approaching the window. 
Sanchez makes a large deal with the dealers as Bond takes out the toothpaste explosive and squirts the plastique along the base of the window. He then attaches a detonator disguised as a pack of cigarettes. He quickly gets out of there and makes his way to the rolls. He gets in and Q drives off. We then see another car following him. Back at the meeting, Sanchez and Truman Lodge finish their proposal. The men seem to be in agreement, but one man says that while they've eaten well and heard many stories while they were here, he would like them to see some hardware. Sanchez smiles and says, you don't pay for hardware. You pay for his personal guarantee and protection, referring to the man as Mr. Quang. Quang, who was the man that we saw spying on Bond earlier, then says that if you want to invest $100 million, you would surely want some reassurance. Sanchez concedes and says, why not? Explain that tomorrow he'll take them to their main distribution center. Quang smiles. Well, now we know he's not really who he says he is. Nearby, Q drops Bond off and hands him a case. Bond then tells Q goodbye. Q, surprised, says, what? And gets out of the car. Bond comments on him being a good field operative and says he'll get him, see him back in London. Well, I mean, the only thing we've seen him do so far is drive a car around. Q looks confused and worried. At Sanchez's office, the meeting concludes and they adjourn to a room where food and women wait. Sanchez turns to Truman Lodge and Heller and says that he feels this quang is trouble. See, even the main villain knows it's obvious. Truman Lodge asks why he would show them the labs. Sanchez, not to worry, they won't expose the operation. <clears throat> so Bond opens up a case and takes out the camera with the palm reader and attaches the pieces to make it a sniper rifle. He flips a switch on a remote trigger and activates the detonator. He watches as, inside the office, Sanchez meets with President Lopez. Now, it is a good time to mention that the man that plays President Lopez is Pedro Armendariz Jr., the son of late actor Pedro Armendariz, who played Karen Bay in From Russia with Love. So the president is upset about his payments, saying it's half the usual amount. Sanchez scoffs and says that he was very quiet when he was arrested. He reminds him that he's only president for life. President Lopez snatches a check and walks away in a huff. Bond then spots Heller in a separate room where he meets with Pam. Bond's eyes widen as he sees Pam handing Heller an envelope. He then turns his sight back towards Sanchez, putting his crosshairs directly on the back of his head. Watch the birdie, you bastard, he whispers to himself. He flips the remote detonator switch and the bomb goes off, sending Sanchez reeling. He gets up and Bond is about to shoot him. Why didn't he do that first and then blow the place up? When someone comes out of the darkness and karate chops him, causing Bond to miss, a ninja attacks Bonda and manages to subdue him. Bond is tied to a table in an undisclosed location. Almost looks like a shed you'd find in someone's backyard or one of like those old run-down garages. Definitely serial killer territory. Water is splashed on his face and he comes to. Quang approaches and grabs his hand, placing the gun in it. The palm reader beeps, acknowledging Bond's hand. Quang asks who would have a signature gun. A man approaches from the shadows and says, James Bond. Oh, come on. I mean, I know he's like the Joe Montana of the spy world, but surely there are other spot, super spies that would have a signature gun. I mean, it could be standard issue for all MI6 agents. The man then grabs a gun and says, this is the property of Her Majesty's Sikh government, asking Bond how he got it. Bond tells the man to piss off. Quang then asks who ordered him to kill Sanchez. The mystery man says no one, that he's a rogue agent and has orders to take him back right away. 
Now, while we never hear this man's name, he is listed in the credits as Fallon, and the novelization lists him as a British intelligence agent working in Isthmus City for four years. So anyway, Quang gets upset, saying that they're Hong Kong narcotics, who employ ninjas, apparently. He says that Sanchez is going to take them to the heart of his operation, and he's been setting it up for years. Actually, Quang, it sounds more like you've been setting it up for hours. I mean, you literally just asked him at the meeting to see the operation. It's not like you've been begging him or infiltrated his organization for years. All he did was attend a meeting, pretending to be a drug dealer. So anyway, Quang adds that he hopes that Bond's little stunt didn't scare him off. I mean, if you were really monitoring Sanchez for years, Quang, you would really know that he doesn't seem like the type to scare away easily. So Bond demands he gets out of the chains, and Fallon holds up a needle telling Bond no, that he's a loose cannon who's went on deck and then shipping him straight back to London. Bond struggles as they attempt to put the needle in when suddenly an explosion goes off near the shack and sends men flying. It's a small tank outside with Colonel Heller and his mercenaries. A beam lands on an agent and falls on Bond. Some random female agent cries over the guy's body, but Quang says to leave him and takes off. Two more shells are fired, killing Fallon and then Quang. The female agent approaches Quang, who, barely alive, tells her to not let them take her alive. Soldiers approach the wreckage and she jumps out and attacks, pulling some karate moves on them. Heller walks in and easily shoots her with his... This is another scene that was edited down to avoid the R rating. Uh, originally, the female agent had blood just spatter out of her as Heller shot at her over and over again. And this was actually toned down for the theatrical cut. So Sanchez enters, and both he and Heller spot Quang lying there all bloody. Sanchez asks who sent him, and Heller pulls a knife, grabbing Quang by the collar. Quang opens his mouth, revealing a tablet. He bites down, and his mouth starts foaming. Heller says it's cyanide. Quang is dead. Sanchez gets up and angrily shoots the corpse. They then spot Bond chained up to the table, unconscious. Bond awakens, all cleaned up and in a bed in a large room. Holy hell! Bond jumps as he spots the most hideous room decor ever seen in a movie or real life. It's a large statue of a fish with a human head. Jeez, that's pure nightmare fuel. When they're doing the set decoration here, who the hell chose that? That's the most hideous thing I've ever seen in my life. So anyway, Bond gets out, wondering where he's at. He spots his tuck, all cleaned, pressed, and hung nicely. He exits and is greeted by Sanchez out on his deck. He has Bond sit down with Lupe while he takes a call. After the call, he sits down with them and tells Bond that they both had close calls that night. Bond tells Sanchez he turned up in time as things were about to get nasty. Sanchez asks who they were. Bond says they were a freelance hit team. Sanchez then asks what they wanted with him, and Bond replies that one of them must have recognized him in the casino. He adds that they were afraid that he would warn Sanchez and ruin their plans. Sanchez asks if he knew them. Bond says that Bond then tells him that he used to work for the British government and that they used to keep dossiers on such people. Sanchez says he knew he was a British agent as he has class. Sanchez gets Bond coffee. We now know and can rest comfortably knowing that Bond drinks his coffee black. So Bond says that they must have been well briefed, obviously by someone from the inside. Sanchez asks if they gave a name, and Bond says no, only that they're expecting to receive a great deal of cash from someone arriving at Isthmus tonight. Bond asks Sanchez if he suspects someone, but Sanchez says that everyone in his organization is 100% loyal. <laughs> Soon see that that's not true at all. Bond says he has nothing to worry about then. Sanchez gets up and says he has some place to be, but invites Bond to stay. Bond politely declines, stating that he has to get back to the hotel. Sanchez insists, telling Bond to save his money. He leaves, and 
Lupe shows him a lift that takes him to the top of the mansion. God, how big is this place? Heller approaches and plays a guessing game with Sanchez, saying he'll never guess who Bond is. Sanchez smiles and says, a former British secret agent? Heller smiles and asks how he knew that. Sanchez coolly replies, because I know things. He then tells Heller that he wants to meet with Crest on the boat tonight. Heller asks if he suspects anything about Crest, and Sanchez says, we'll see. He also asks that Lupe be there, as Crest won't lie in front of her since she was there. Up in Bond's room at the mansion, Bond starts packing. Lupe asks what he's doing. Bond says he's had enough of Sanchez's hospitality. Lupe says he's only asking for trouble if he leaves. Bond tells her that there's no need for her to get involved. Bond then asks just to give him five minutes and then scream your head off. She says there will be guards all over the place and he'll never make it. So we then see Lupe coming down the lift. She pretends to drop her purse and a guard helps her pick it up as Bond sneaks down to the docks. So there's only one guard docking, guarding the dock area? I mean, she said that there's guards all over the place. So Lupe heads down to the dock and gets in a boat. The guard realizes what she's doing and chases after, pleading with her to stay as Sanchez said so. She takes off in a boat and Bond surfaces from the side. Bond sure does get wet a lot in this movie. In the hotel, Q and Pam are talking. Bond bursts in and scolds Q, saying that he told him to leave as he grabs Pam's arm and drags her into the bedroom. Q says that they couldn't leave without knowing what happened to him. Bond slams the door shut and tosses Pam on the bed. She shouts, asking what's wrong with him. Bond says that Quang and his British agents are dead and that he saw her meeting with Heather, suspecting that she's working with them. She says no. Bond grabs the gun from her thigh holster and holds it near her, saying he wants the truth. She says she is telling the truth. She says that Sanchez has arranged to buy four Stinger missiles from the Contras and has threatened to shoot down an American airliner if the DEA doesn't back off. Bond asks what that has to do with her and Heller. Pam says that Felix gave her a letter from the Attorney General, granting Heller immunity if he can get the missiles back. Bond starts to simmer down and asks if he went for the deal. Pam says yes, but then tells Bond that he missed Sanchez, and Heller panics, saying the deal was off. He then told her that she's dead if he saw her again. She looks at Bond and tells him that there's more to this than his personal vendetta. She gets up, and Bond looks stunned, realizing that his actions had consequences. God, I really love this scene. I mean, it's truly a remarkable acting from both Dalton and Lowell. So anyway, she says that since then, Sanchez has tripled his security and that he'll never get another shot at him. Bond genuinely looks apologetic and hands Pam her gun back. We then see Bond opening the door as Q has his bags packed. Bond tells Pam that he'll meet her at the Harbor Masters in a couple of hours. He then tells Q to bring the rolls around. Q gets excited and acknowledges, oh, God, Q really loves doing field work. So Bond meets with the bank president again, telling that he's making a withdrawal. President's smile fades as he sees several empty suitcases brought in. The wave crest then pulls into the harbor. The harbor pilot boat pulls up alongside it. Q is driving the boat, and Bond is there for the ride. Pam poses as the harbor pilot and climbs aboard, too much to the surprise of the wave crest workers. Pam walks into the bridge and tells the captain she'll take over. The captain questions that she's the harbor pilot because I guess women aren't able to do that. And she scoffs, sarcastically saying, no, she's his secretary. Captain hands over the controls, and Pam starts guiding the boat in. Sanchez, Lupe, and Heller arrive at the docks, watching the ship come in. Captain tells Pam that she's coming in a little fast. She asks if she wants to drive, then fine, throttling the ship all the way up and taking off. Captain quickly takes the wheel and throttles down, but the ship crashes into the dock. Pam makes her way down into the ship. 
Crest heads into the bridge and asks the captain what the hell he's doing. The captain says the harbor pilot went crazy. Bond dives in with the sacks of cash and waterproof bags. Pam makes her way to the belly of the ship, pressing a button to open the underwater hatch to let Bond into the sub dock. He climbs in and drags the bags aboard. Bond gets distracted for a moment as Pam takes off her harbor pilot coveralls, revealing her undergarments. Nothing but a bikini and panties, and Bond's immediately distracted from the mission at hand. So Crest approaches Sanchez, saying he's surprised to see him there. Sanchez says he likes surprises. He then tells Crest that he seems to be having a lot of problems lately. Crest nervously laughs, saying that he had, they had a crazy harbor pilot. Sanchez then tells Crest that they need to talk about the money he owes them. Crest says they should talk inside. Inside the sub-dock, Bond and Pam unload the money into one of the pressurized chambers. Sanchez asks Lupe if Crest has a safe. She says it's not up here, but maybe has one below. Sanchez then orders his men to look around. Bond closes the pressurized hatch, and they pack up their stuff into the waterproof sack and start to get into the water. Inside Crest's office, Crest regales Sanchez in the tale of Bond's amazing theft of the money. Sanchez doesn't believe him. I mean, and honestly, it is a pretty crazy story. Crest doesn't help his case as he stammers and appears drunk. In the sub-dock, Bond gets into the water, and Pam is about to join him when she hears men approaching. She quickly hides in a closet as the men look around. Bond watches them as they spot the money in the pressurized chamber. Their distraction gives Pam enough time to quietly slip into the water. Inside Crest's office, Sanchez's men approach and whisper something to Sanchez as Crest attempts to plead his case about not making it up. Sanchez does not look pleased. They head down to the sub-dock and they show Sanchez the money opening the hatch. Sanchez sees a large pile of money and glares at Crest. Crest says that's not his money. Sanchez says, you're right, it's mine. He then grabs Crest and throws him up against the railing, accuses him of ripping him off and then trying to pay someone off to kill him. Then if he wants it so bad, he can take it. He then throws Crest into the pressurized tank and has the hatch closed. Turns up the pressurization in the chamber. Crest starts screaming as he bangs on the small window. His eardrums start hurting as Crest continues screaming. Sanchez cranks it all the way up, then grabs an axe, cutting the ventilation hose. Crest's head balloons up and explodes in a gory mess. Damn, this kill would make Jason Voorhees jealous. Actually, again, this is another one of the scenes that had to be toned down due to avoiding the R rating. Uh, we actually see the camera cut away to a goon reacting to the explosion as we hear the guts hit the door and only see a brief background shot of the blood window. Uh, again, if you have the Ultimate Edition DVD, it does show the full quote-unquote R-rated version of the film, although it's still rated PG-13. Uh, that shot actually shows the head exploding rather than cutting away. And I really should point out the depth of Dobby's performance here. I mean, he's such a down-to-earth guy in most of the scenes, and you like you almost start liking the guy, but then you see him here, and you realize, how again, how cruel and sadistic his character is with just a simple look on his face. I mean, he just, like a, just the flip of a switch. So Sanchez goes to leave when his men ask what they should do with the money. Sanchez says, launder it. Yeah. Kind of ruin the moment there. So Bond and Pam make their way back to the boat. Later, the boat docks at the harbor. Bond instructs them to take the plane, and this is where they get off, and that they'll meet them back in Miami. Pam asks if he wants help, but Bond says he's better off on his own. You know, this is like the third time you've told her 
You don't need her help anymore. And twice for Q. So do you really think they're just going to leave? So Bond takes the harbor pilot boat and leaves. Back at Sanchez's mansion, Sanchez enters Bond's room. He turns on the light and Bond sits up, barely awake. He sits down on the side of the bed and hands Bond some stacks of cash, saying the information you told him paid off. You got the man who set him up. Bond says it was just one guy? Sanchez doesn't understand. Bond says he figured no one would be stupid enough to take you on on their own. Sanchez smiles and chuckles and starts laughing. He then tells Bond he wants him to come with him tomorrow. Bond asks where they're going, but Sanchez, it's a surprise. Sanchez leaves and Lupe enters. Bond says it's not a good idea for her to be there. She says it's fine as he thinks she's out having dinner with friends. She pleads with Bond not to go with him. She says, I'm worried about us. Us? What us? I mean, you've helped him out a couple of times and he's been nice to you, but other than that, there's been no signs of physical or emotional attraction. The first time he saw him, he just kept turning him away. And I mean, he wasn't even like, he was just, hey, are you okay? You know, he was just being nice. And she kind of treated him like shit. So anyway, Bond tells her not to worry that when it's all over, he'll see that she gets back home. She says it took her 15 years to get away from there. And she doesn't want to go back. She asks if they can leave together and kisses him. Bond says he doesn't think it would work out, but she says he doesn't know unless they try. They kiss each other and lay down on the bed to make whoopee. Back at the hotel, Q and Pam are packing up when the door knocks. Q answers it and Lupe enters. She approaches Pam, saying that she saw her with Bond at the casino. She warns them about Sanchez, saying that he's no fool and that Bond is in danger. Pam says that everything is all right because Bond is out of the country by now. Lupe says no, that he was with her last night. Wait, where did Pam get the idea that Bond was leaving the country? He just said he's going to finish it on his own. Pam doesn't like the sound of that, and Q rolls his eyes before quickly intervening and remarking, at Sanchez's house? I mean, why is Pam jealous? Other than that romantic interlude on the boat, she's really shown no other interest in Bond either. Lupe complies and says that he's going with Sanchez on a trip. She says that she's worried about Bond and that she, that she loves him so much. No, brother. Quick, Q quickly ushers Lupe out, saying that she better go before she's missed. Q says they'll think of something. Pam mocks what Lupe said and says she'll be damned if she helps him. Q comforts Pam, telling him not to judge Bond so harshly, saying that field officers must use every means at their disposal in order to complete their objectives. Yeah, that'll make her feel so much better, Q. And I know this was brought up if you ever watch uh, YouTube uh, channel series uh, Everything Wrong With. They did review they do a do a review of license to kill but i feel i must mention it here you know yes there have been times where bond has had to sleep with you know the enemy to get information but he didn't have to sleep with lupe here she wasn't a part of it she doesn't know anything about about sanchez's organization all that stuff he chose to sleep with her we'll just kind of clear that clear the air there pam shouts bullshit yeah our sentiments exactly Pam. So that day, Hugh, disguised as a yard worker and holding a broom, spots Sanchez's convoy leaving. He pulls an antenna up from the broom bristles and pulls up on the handle, revealing a receiver and relays the information to Pam. Yeah, don't make it too obvious, Q. And where did he get this one anyway? I mean, it wasn't part of the kit. Does he have like a Mary Poppins bag where he can just pull long stuff out? It's a magical. Q then tosses the broom into some bushes and leaves. What, he's just going to leave it there? 
Somebody Pam arrives at the airport and sees men working on her plane. She asks what they're doing. And they point to a clipboard and say that Sanchez ordered a complete overhaul. She then asks well, where she can rent one, but the mechanic tells her that there are none. A helicopter lands at Sanchez's place and Dario gets out. He shows Sanchez and Heller the Stinger missiles. Sanchez says he wants them near him from this moment on. Convoy arrives at the temple of the Olympic Meditation Institute. In one of the cars, Truman Lodge tells the men that they started this as only as a cover, but Professor Joe has managed to turn a tidy profit. We then see Pam fly overhead in a crop-dusting airplane that she commandeered. Convoy parks inside the facility, and Truman Lodge hands everyone a face mask, asking them to put it on. He jokes that he doesn't want anyone developing a drug habit. On the temple grounds, the helicopter approaches, and a section of the ground opens up where the helicopter lowers into Inside the lab, Truman Lodge explains that the product dissolves completely in ordinary gasoline and is at 100% undetectable. We see large bricks of cocaine getting crushed through a grinder. One of the men asks how they get it back. Sanchez approaches with Dario and asks if they want them to tell them all the secrets, to which the men laugh. Truman Lodge shows them the next process, and they head into another room. Dario asks about Bond, and Sanchez it's someone new, someone he thinks can be useful. Dario looks as though he might recognize him. Pam has landed her plane and gets a ride from some randos in a rusty truck. She approaches the gate and asks to see Professor Joe as she has a surprise for him. Guard says there are no visitors right now. Pam gets upset saying she traveled all the way from Wichita Falls and that the folks back home took up a collection. She then shows the guard a bag of money. Inside the lab, Truman Lodge instructs that they can remove their masks. Everyone but Bond does, which makes Dario a little bit more suspicious. Truman Lodge then explains the terms and accepts their payments. Pam meets with Professor Joe, who welcomes her. She acts all excited and overwhelmed by the immensity of the place. Joe asks if she ever thought of studying here, and she continues to lay on the farm girl gee whiz shtick, and he eats it all up. In the lab, Bond has finally taken off his mask. Why? He knows Dario knows who he is. He's just giving himself away. So, of course, Dario approaches him and looks at Bond, putting a gun into his back because he recognizes him from the bar. Sanchez shows the men how the process works, which has some needlessly complicated process of separating the gasoline from the cocaine, then filtering out the remaining water so the cocaine comes out in some sort of paste. Yeah, but, I mean, now that it's a paste, won't it be harder to use? I mean, I mean I'm no drug expert, but of all the cocaine, cocaine snorting I've seen in movies, I would think it would be considerably harder to snort paste. Professor Joe takes Pam into his private meditation room, a.k.a. his freaky sex chamber. He has that it's soundproof so no one can hear their meditation. He lies down on the bed next to her, and she says she has a surprise for him, and he gets all excited. <laughs> While Wayne Newton isn't a professional actor, I mean, he plays the part of this oily televangelist perfectly. So you really got to give him props for this performance. So she pulls a gun on him and gets out of the bed. Professor Joe says it's not necessary, but Pam fires a shot into a framed poster behind him. She asks for the keys, and he gives them to her. She grabs a cult robe and leaves. Joe smiles and says, bless your heart. So Truman Lodge explains the process and how they'll have scientists with them to help with the conversion process. Sanchez assures that there won't be a problem with customs. He says there would be no evidence. He then lights a match and tosses it into the petri dish full of gas which immediately flames up. 
Bond uses this chance and headbutts Dario before grabbing the flaming dish and tossing it toward another table, igniting the rest of the gasoline. The men grab Bond and Dario punches him as everyone panics. Dario shouts to Sanchez that he's an informer. Sanchez tells Bond that he disappoints him and wants to know who he's working with, but Bond stays silent. Sanchez ties up Bond's hands and legs and lays him down on the conveyor belt with the bricks of cocaine. Truman Lodge shouts to Sanchez that they need to save the facility or they'll lose it. Sanchez angrily shouts he doesn't care about the setup. He says that they have $500 million in the case and 20 tons of Colombian pure in the tankers. He then tells him to go help Heller. Meanwhile, Heller sneaks off. The drug dealers, for no apparent reason, run off rather than get in the limo and drive off. They lay Bond down on the conveyor belt, and Sanchez starts it up. He says that when it's up to his ankles, he'll beg him to tell him everything, and when it's up to his knees, he'll be kissing his ass to kill him. <coughs> Three, two, one. He says that when it's up to his ankles, he'll be begging him to tell him everything, and when it's up to his knees, he'll be kissing his ass to kill him. Bond keeps grabbing onto the rail, and Sanchez keeps kicking his hands. Bond says that he's the least of his problems, asking if he couldn't trust Crest. Who can he trust? Says, Who has the 500 million? Truman Lodge? And then asks about the Stingers. Sanchez stops the conveyor belt and asks what he knows about the Stingers. One of Sanchez's men runs up and says, they need to get out of here before the place blows. Sanchez then asks where Heller is, and the guy says he doesn't know. Bond says, that's the last you'll see of Heller and the Stingers. Sanchez has Dario start the conveyor belt up again, thanking Bond for the advice. Sanchez leaves and Dario sticks around. Bond goes off the belt but hangs on to the edge. Dario gets up and straddles the belt, pulling out his knife. He spits on Bond, starts cutting the rope that's hooked onto the edge, keeping Bond alive. The rope cuts, but Bond grabs onto the edge and hangs on. He looks up and we see Pam, dressed in the white robe, holding a gun on Dario. Dario laughs and says, You're dead. Pam says, you took the words right out of my mouth, and shoots Dario. He falls back under the conveyor belt, but manages to hang onto the railing. He chuckles before Bond grabs his foot and yanks. Dario falls onto the belt and falls down into the grinder, where he starts getting chopped up. And again, this is another one of the scenes that was edited to avoid the R rating. There was an additional brief shot of the underside of the grinder, showing Dario getting chopped up in chunks of flesh splattering against the lens. So anyway, Dario tries to hang on to Bond, but is dragged into the grinder and turned into ground chuck. Pam stupidly asks Bond if he's okay, and Bond shouts, shut the bloody thing off! So she runs to the controls and shuts it down. Outside, Sanchez sees Heller with the Stinger missiles. Heller's surprised to see Sanchez. He was just making sure they're safe. Sanchez, that's a good idea, and to load them into his car. The place starts blowing, and Bond and Pam are trying to find a way out. Forklift crashes through, and they see Heller impaled through one of the forks. Uh, this was another scene that was slightly edited. Uh, there was like a, actually a closer upshot uh, of Heller's, you know, impaled body. That, they, but that was a, a little bit more subtle, so you can't even really, you don't really notice a difference in this one. Uh, Bond anyway. Bond says it looks like he came to a dead end. So they escape through the hole, and Sanchez takes off in a 1988 Maserati bi-turbo. He spots Truman Lodge running off, and he cuts him off, telling him to come with him. Sanchez's other henchmen take off in a 1976 Jeep Renegade II. Bond and Pam commandeer Professor Joe's golf cart and take So they spot Joe running with the others, carrying the bag of money. Pam grabs it and says, thanks. Joe smiles and says, bless your heart. Bond and Pam get to her plane and take off. Sanchez and his 
men catch up to the tanker trucks as they spot the plane swoop low and Bond jump onto the tanker. Sanchez starts shooting at him and Bond falls between the tanker and the cab but manages to get back up. He opens the passenger door and the driver grabs a knife attempting to stab Bond. Bond blocks his attack and hits the guy, knocking him out of the trunk. Bond takes over driving. Sanchez pulls ahead, alerting the other driver and getting on the radio to inform his man Perez to meet him at Paso del Diablo. Bond tries to pass the other tanker, but he blocks him. Tries to pass again, but swerves to avoid hitting a truck carrying pineapples. Ahead, Sanchez stops and takes out one of the missiles, handing Perez the rocket launcher. Truman Lodge looks worried, but Sanchez says not to. It's only money. Bond manages to get alongside the other tanker, and the goon tries to ram him. Bond rams him back, pushing the truck into the mountainside, crushing it with the front axle coming completely dislodged. Oh, yes, another quality vehicle in the Bond franchise. Uh, Perez sees the truck approaching and readies the rocket launcher. Perez locks into the target, and Bond sees what he's got. As Perez fires the rocket, Bond maneuvers the truck towards a convenient mound from a construction zone and puts the truck on its side. So as this is an 18-wheeler, I guess that would make him go in on nine wheels? So the missile passes safely underneath the truck and blows up the crash truck behind him. Perez looks baffled as Bond continues to drive it at an angle, dropping the truck on the Jeep as the goons take off. Now this is an incredible stunt that was achieved in real life. I mean, they really did that. They... It was just, I mean, this is just classic stunt work right here that kind of one-ups the two-wheel driving scene in Diamonds Are Forever, which which was fantastic, but it's ruined by that edited shot and because of the, the goof-up when it exits, you know, the opposite way. So. so anyway, they fire at Bond, hitting the back tires and shredding them. Bond swerves out of control and stops, jackknifed in the road. Pam approaches on the plane and drops some pesticide on the men, waving to Bond as she passes. Bond waves back as he spots Sanchez and the other tanker truck on a lower road on the mountain. Quickly unhitches the tanker and has it roll down the mountainside where it crashes into the other tanker truck and explodes. I, mean, I know Bond has a keen eye and is an expert marksman, but I mean, this is pure luck here. I mean, the perfect amount of timing for him to hit this spot on is as staggering as it is impossible to pull off within seconds. So Truman Luggage gets upset as they pull the car over. He screams at Sanchez, saying, that's great, another $80 million write-off. Sanchez says it's time to cut some overhead and shoots and kills the guy. I mean, what was the point of that? I mean, he's understandably upset about all the hard work put into this operation, only see it all go up in smoke like that. It's not like he betrayed Sanchez or anything. It kind of goes against Sanchez's MO. He believes in loyalty and, you know, and has only killed the people that have betrayed him. So anyway, Sanchez picks up the briefcase and takes off. Bond takes off in the truck and takes off after them. Sanchez gets in the fourth tanker truck and takes off as the rest of the flaming tanker explodes. So Bond stops when he sees the wall of flames and then floors it, causing the cab of the semi-trailer to do a wheelie while the Bond theme blares. It doesn't matter if you use the awesome Bond theme during a stupid moment like this. It's still going to be a stupid moment. I mean, come on, despite the fact that it's logistically impossible for a semi-cab to do that, it, it just looks really dumb. I mean, it would have been cooler if Bond were to somehow ramp over the flames than do this. 
So anyway, some of the other goons pursue Bond in a 1988 Dodge Ram pickup truck and try to drive through the flames, catching themselves on fires like the idiots they are. Bond gets closer to the tanker truck and sets the cruise control and starts climbing out the window, which I'm guessing in movie terms is also the autopilot because the vehicle manages to stay completely straight while Bond climbs out. So Bond climbs into the back of the tanker and opens up the release valve, spraying gasoline all over the road. The flaming truck still chases after them. And how those tires haven't blown or melted, I'll never know. Hey, look, flame-proof tires. The flaming tires ignite the gasoline, engulfing the truck in flames. They fly off the cliff, nearly hitting Pam in the plane. Bond climbs up toward the cab. Sanchez spots the plane flying overheads and shoots a missile at it. Shoots a hole into the rudder, and Pam has to make a quick landing. Sanchez has them stop the truck, and Bond falls between the tanker and the cab again. Sanchez attempts to cut him with a machete, but Bond gets out of the way. Sanchez cuts the air brakes instead. The trucker realizes he has no brakes, and the truck starts rolling down the road. Bond and Sanchez trade punches hanging off the back of the tanker as the driver bails. It goes off the side of the road and flips over, spilling gas everywhere. Bond gets up, but Sanchez holds the machete to his head, throwing Bond up against the rock. Tells Bond that he could have had everything. Bond asks if he wants to know why. He pulls out the lighter that Felix and Della had given him and flashes the inscription. Sanchez's eyes widen as Bond lights it and lights Sanchez's gasoline-soaked clothes on fire. Sanchez screams in terror as he collapses, engulfed in flames, and he's dead. Again, this was another scene that was edited to avoid the R rating. Uh, there was actually a longer shot of Sanchez burning and writhing before he collapses. They consider shorten it considerably for the theatrical release. So Bond runs off as the tanker explodes. Bond stops to take a deep breath where he spots Pam pulling up in the truck he was driving before he jumped out of the tanker. She asks what he's waiting for and tells him it again. Bond jokingly says, yes, sir. We then cut to a hospital where Felix is on the mend. He's talking to Bond on the phone. Bond tells him they'll come by next week and they'll go fishing. What is it with action movie stars talk about or going fishing? I mean, Axel Foley had a similar conversation with Captain Bogomil in 1987's Beverly Hills Cop 2. And we eventually see Jason Statham's Frank Martian actually fishing with his inspector friend in 2008's Transporter 3. So Felix then tells Bond that M called and that he may have a job for him. Bond says that he has to go as his host has just arrived. We see Bond at a formal dinner party and Lupe shows up holding Sanchez's iguana. Bond hangs up and says he thought she hated that thing. She smiles and says that iguanas are a girl's best friend, showing Bond the diamond bracelet that formerly belonged to the iguana. We all know that Iguana will get his revenge for her stealing his diamond collar. So Bond sees Pam and starts to leave, but Lupe stops and tells him that she could stay with him. Pam sees him talking and walks away upset. Bond goes after her, saying that he feels she and El Presidente will make a good couple. Bond leaps over the balcony and lands at a pool that Pam is standing beside. She looks surprised, then smiles. She goes to help Bond out, but he pulls her in. They kiss as Q watches on. They share an exchange of words before we cut to the credits, and that was License to Kill. Now, License to Kill premiered at the Odeon Leicester Square in London on June 13th, 1989, earning a total of 7.5 million pounds. It opened in the U.S. on July 14th, going up against the likes of Lethal Weapon 2, Batman, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. 
It opened in fourth behind those films and go on to gross a total of $34.6 million, making it the lowest box office gross for a Bond film in the U.S. It would wind up being the 36th highest grossing film in 1999 uh, and would go on to gross a total of $156.2 million worldwide against a $32 million budget. Now let's take a look at the reviews, which were mostly positive. I I absolutely love this film. I give it three and a half stars. I honestly think this is the most underrated Bond film. Some people say it's on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I think this one is sorely underrated. A lot of people give this one crap. This is like, this is early. Like, we look at Daniel Craig's Bond when he started in 2006 and how he was tough and gritty. This was a this was before that time. I mean, this was ahead of its time. Uh, people weren't ready for this tough and gritty, uh, you know, semi-serious Bond. Yet they were still, you know, used to the the cool and suave Sean Connery, or the kind of uh, you know punny Roger Moore version. But here, I mean, it's just. But it's just. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. This is one of the best Bond films. Uh, on top of being the most underrated one. Uh, I think Dalton is just terrific here. Uh, I love Robert Davi. He's a more grounded, more human bad guy. He's not, he doesn't play it over the top. He, he plays it. You're, you feel almost like semi-sympathetic for this character. It's, it's, you know, you almost want to like him, but he's still very much a bad guy and he really shows it. Um, but that's how well Davi plays it. Um, I think Carrie Lowell is a top-notch ally slash love interest for Bond. She's one of the best Bond women in the franchise. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn gets his largest role as Q to date uh, and is basically a supporting character here. It's it's just incredible. I mean, it's long overdue. He had some larger roles in, in other Bond films, but this is by far his biggest, uh, and it's it's a very welcome uh departure from you know where he just sort of appears and gives out the gadgets stuff like that he, he actually has a hand in assisting bond throughout um, the story i find the story exciting it never gets dull uh yeah there's a dark more serious tone again like i said it predates what people would wind up raving about in the daniel craig era so again it was i think that's what turned people on it's just it was just ahead of its time you know it's just one of those one of those things in history where you know, this is more in tune with the Ian Fleming character, uh, but I don't think people were just quite ready for that yet. So it was about a decade, two decades too soon. Uh, so, so yeah, it was. Uh, but I think it's just it's it's just wonderful. I, I enjoy watching this from beginning to end every single time, uh, and I just love it more and more. Now, uh, Derek Malcolm of The Guardian stated that he liked The Harder Edge, but wishes that it was written and directed with a bit more flair. Uh, Philip French of The Observer said it was an entertaining, untaxing film. Ian Christie of The Daily Express, however, stated the film was absurd and fundamentally dull. Hilary Mantel of The Spectator also was negative towards the film, calling it very noisy and that it's weary and repetitive and very noisy. She added that the sex is low-key and off-screen, but there's a smirking, perverse undertow which makes him more disagreeable than a slasher movie. So uh, That's a good point, really. Not well, the sex part. 
they really toned down the sex because in the eighties, late eighties, it was it was the AIDS era, the AIDS epidemic going on. Um, especially, you know, prior to Living Daylights being filmed Mason. They referred to Timothy Dalton as the monogamous bond. Uh, because he didn't he, it wasn't like other bond films where he's sleeping with like multiple women. It was basically just in one and when it happens it's usually off screen or uh it's it's very underplayed as opposed to the other Bond films where he tries to sleep with as many women as possible. <laughs> all the all the lady, all the female characters in the film. So uh moving on, Gary Arnold of the Washington Times thought that Dalton seems to waste away on this second outing as Bond. However, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun Times gave the film also three and a half stars stating that the stunts all look convincing and the effect of the closing sequence is exhilarating. He calls it one of the best of the recent bonds. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune called the film uneven, ranging from exciting to tedious. He did state that he prefers Dalton's bond to Moore's, calling the character a gutsy hard worker. Therefore, on their review show, Siskel and Ebert, they gave it a split vote. Gene, a thumbs down, and Roger, a thumbs up. Now, Jack Kroll of Newsweek described it as pure, rousingly entertaining action movie. And film critic Leonard Malton gave the film three stars, calling it a tough, mean Bond adventure. He had said it has dazzling stunts, high adventure, and a sexy companion in Carrie Lowell, making this one of the best of the series since Sean Connery's departure. Now, let's take a look at the differences between the book and the film. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning... The film is not based on any of its works, although the Felix Leiter situation in the film is borrowed from Fleming's Live and Let Die novel, and situations revolving around the Milton Crest character were borrowed from the Hildebrand Rarity short story. Uh, so those are the only elements that tie it to a Fleming novel. So as it's not wholly based on any original material from Ian Fleming, a movie novelization was commissioned to be written, the first since 1979's James Bond in Moonraker. Now, the author chosen to write the movie novelization was John Gardner, who had picked up the 007 mantle in 1981, writing original James Bond novels that kept in the same continuity and time, same timeline as the Ian Fleming novels. Now, this presented a challenge for Gardner, as he would have to break away from the book continuity. He was worried that it was going to confuse fans. Therefore, he decided to have this book take place separately from the book continuity, with his next book, Broken Claw, disregarding the events in License to Kill. Now, in the novel, Bond does not have his Walter PPK. It's referenced that the PPK was banned by the service, and Bond instead uses a Walter P38K. There's also an additional scene where, after Bond has his double O status revoked, and M informs Q and Moneypenny about it, that Q tells Moneypenny that he has to be stopped or helped. Uh, there's also a memo that Q receives from M telling him to go on leave and travel to Isthmus City to help Bond. Uh, in the film, there's no scene like that, and Q shows up out of the blue, offering his assistance, stating he's on holiday, implying that M may, not, may or may not be aware of his whereabouts. And the subplot involving stolen Stinger missiles is completely omitted from the novel, swapping it out for a hand-controlled missile launcher instead. Now, the film is also adapted into a 44-page color graphic novel that was written and drawn by Mike Grell, who was also the author of the original um, all the original story Bond comic books. And it was published by Eclipse Comics and Acme Press. Uh, the graphic novel follows the film closely, although the ending is briefer and James Bond does not bear the resemblance of Timothy Dalton, 
this was because Dalton refused to allow his likeness to be licensed. Now let's take a look at the video game adaptations. In 1989, Domark published a video game adaptation of the film, which was developed by Quicksell. Its official title is 007, License to Kill, and is a top-down scrolling action shoot-em-up that follows the story of the film. It was presumably switched from the side-scroller that the Living Daylights game was to the top-down scroller to capitalize on the success of 1987's Contra, which was released for Nintendo consoles in 1988. There are six levels and include helicopter chases, underwater diving, water skis, and being behind the wheel of an 18-wheel tanker truck. It was released for the DOS, Amiga, Amstrad CPC, Atari ST, BBC Micro, Commodore 64, MSX, and ZX Spectrum home computers. Now, Tengen was originally planning on adapting the game for Nintendo Entertainment Systems, and Quicksell marked that the version as complete, even though it was missing the final level. The game was set for a June 1990 release, but was delayed due to the completion of that final level. By the time it was completed, Domark ended up canceling the release, believing that too much time had passed since the film's release. I don't think fans really would have minded, honestly. Now, in 2012, License to Kill was adapted as one of the levels in 007 Legends, which saw Daniel Craig's Bond taking the place of the previous Bonds in several updated missions based on the movies. Kind of talked about this before. They used Connery's Goldfinger, Lazenby's Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Moore's Moonraker, Dalton's License to Kill, and Brosnan's Die Another Day. Uh, it basically took those films and placed them in a more modern-day setting. Um, 007 Legends was a first-person shooter with interactive cutscenes developed by Eurocom and published by Activision, who held licensing rights for the 007 games up to this point. Uh, the License to Kill portion was in two parts, with the first part taking place in the Cult Temple and the Hidden Drug Lab interior, and the second part being the climactic chase, although Bond commandeers a Hummer in the game and drives a couple miles to capture Sanchez while avoiding gunfire and rocket launchers before leaping onto the tanker truck that Sanchez is driving. Uh, although he never drives it in the film, and Bond actually swoops down and takes control of another tanker truck Robert Davi and Carrie Lowell return to provide the likeness and voices of the respective characters, uh, Sanchez and Pam Bouvier, respectively, while uh, Benicio Del Toro's likeness was used for his character, Dario. Uh, the game was released for PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and the Nintendo Wii U home consoles, and for Microsoft Windows home computers. Let's well, go to wrap it up for this episode of the Smithflix Experience. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Again, always feel free to leave a comment at smithflixpodcast at gmail.com or wherever you listen to the podcast. Uh, we can be heard on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Don't worry, though. James Bond will return in GoldenEye. Take care, everyone.